And then we had the Daytona show, which used to be in Orlando. And I mean, I remember going there in 91 and 92 and there were like people from all over the world, like all these guys you heard about that, you know, were in Germany and, and it was just the eye opening, man, especially for a kid that was trying to figure out if I could make a living doing this stuff. And I would go in there and I saw the first piebald ball python there on Pete Call's table and it had this huge price tag. And I just remember thinking, man, that's that's what I'm going to do. But I'm going to do this with lizards. Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. Oh, darn. Welcome, everybody, to (laughs) From the Ground Up podcast with Joe and Melissa. Um, why am I forgetting what we normally do? If you guys don't know, this is our weekly reptile podcast where we have on a different guest, but our little intro spiel is that we have snakes available. Our website, portcitypythons.com is updated currently with all the animals we have. We also have t-shirts. We have snakes and beer t-shirts. We have reptile t-shirts. We have chondro snob t-shirts, a whole bunch out there. Um, also if you are in the Northeast, Next weekend, we will be at the Oaks, Pennsylvania show on Saturday, November 9th. And Sunday, November 10th, we will be at the White Plains show. This White Plains show is their super show. So they have the main floor, the annex, and the basement available. We will be in the basement section of the Westchester County Center. (laughs) Yeah. Unfortunately, fortunately, I don't know. We'll see. We'll We'll see. see how that basement spot works out for us who knows but come and find us uh what else do we have to say also coming up november 23rd is the um battlefield gettysburg show um yeah and i think that's pretty much our show schedule and i don't know what's december is probably going to be nothing really going on yeah um february will be probably another oak show in march or so but anyway thank you to brendan who is i believe he is snake man bk on instagram you gotta add a sticker yes he sent us a flamingo having a good time Yes, so definitely if you are a reptile breeder out there and you have your own logo and everything, um, message us on Instagram and we can work out the whole address thing. Because even though we're pretty uh, transparent, we'd like to not blast our address to everyone in the world. Yes, and if anyone else has any flamingos doing any illicit drugs stickers, you can say that. But I hope no one else has the same exact sticker. No, no, it's a pretty particular one. I believe he is actually an artist and he drew it himself. So So follow him on Instagram, snakeman underscore BK. Yeah, he has like a really cool like surfer type style artwork. Like, uh, I don't know, probably only like 10 people know what I'm talking about. Like Opie Ortiz, (laughs) like the old Sublime style from from like the early 90s and stuff like that. He does a lot of that like West Coast beach style art, which is super cool. You know the most randomest stuff. OBR Ortiz is like, uh, he's a tattoo artist and he drew the cover for all this or for the Sublime Sun, you know, on like 40 mm-hmm. ounces of freedom. And he's done a lot of their other album artwork and stuff like that. So, yeah, so, so that explains the the themage. So this is definitely about snakes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, 
but you want to introduce our guest today? Yes. So today's guest is Ron St. Pierre and Ron has been keeping for who knows how long about, I'm about to ask him, but he started pretty much plucking anoles out of the wilds of Florida and selling them. And he said he dropped out of high school at 15 to do that. To pick up anoles? Yes. He has to do that full time. So I really want to ask him about that. So Ron, thank you so much for being here and uh, welcome to the podcast. He's on mute still, babe. Oh no, we messed it up. Not Sorry. We. Not hey. we. It's all <laughs> me in particular. Okay. Thanks for having me, guys. Of course. So yeah, explain this. You dropped out of high school to do reptiles full time. Yeah, I mean, right around the time I was, I was right about fifteen. I was catching so many Cuban anoles in my neighborhood. I would just ride around on my bike and. You know, on a good day, I could catch 50 of them and they were paying me five bucks a piece at the wholesalers. So I was trading Cuban anoles for things like red tegus and boa constrictors. And I just kept doing it. And eventually I I had stumbled upon a book that was written in the 70s about introduced species in South Florida. And it gave all of the addresses to all of these, you know, spots where where these this biologist had had seen and noted these animals were there. So I took that book and hopped on a couple of metro buses and went to each spot and and found most of the things that were there. One of the things I refound were there was a population listed as spiny tail iguana, which everybody, a lot of people had known about it. It was found on the grounds of the Burger King Corporation corporate headquarters. I did not know <laughs> but, that. But 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 people thought they were similar spiny tails, which were heavily imported and essentially worthless. And I went down there and I I remember walking up and seeing these giant black and white spiny tails on the roofs of these houses sticking out of the barrel tile. And I was like, yeah, those those are not similar. So I caught a couple, realized they were pectinata. And then eventually I told a bunch of people about it. And now they routinely, the pectinata is in the trade. These days, most of them come from that population. And uh, wow, just, and that that like coloration that you were seeing is that the banana pectinata that we see in the hobby now? No, that that's actually a different animal. Um, they do cat. There are yellow. So the pectinatas, the ones that are down in South Florida, are kind of polygenic and I mean polymorphic, and so you get some that have some yellow, but they're big. That's a spiny tail that gets almost four feet long. The banana pectinata doesn't get much bigger than an adult bearded dragon. It's a much smaller. Right. It probably should be a different species, but at the time, at, at this time, it's still considered a pectinata. But true bananas are solid yellow, pretty much with very little black, and they only get about thirty inches. Whereas the pectinatas, you see a lot of people selling banana pectinatas that are just yellow. Florida pectinatas, and it's not the same animal. I actually have both, and uh, it's a there's a big difference between the two. Gotcha. Uh, so how how long has invasives? I mean, have invasives been in Florida? <laughs> well, I mean, so I was 15, so it was 1983 when I started collecting the stuff, and they were literally. I mean, I've caught by the time within a year of me seriously collecting, I had caught African rock pythons and. <laughs> hundreds of iguanas and and golden tegus and all these different species they there was stuff everywhere but it was all found within in the um 
within the city limits of Miami and it was living in canals and warehouse districts. So they were living in places where there really was already no native wildlife. It was all wiped out mm. by, by humans. So they were inhabiting urban niches and it worked out good for them and it gave Miami some wildlife. So it really wasn't a negative thing like it is, you know, with the Burmese and the Everglades. Although I do feel that that has been largely overblown. I do not personally, from what I've seen, I don't think it's, you know, I don't think they're eating all of the animals in the Everglades. It, I just don't see where it's possible, especially the rate of snake eats and how long it, you know, it's not like they're, they're just out there, but they are definitely doing some damage. They are a problem. Um, but that wasn't, that was never the case. I mean, I spent a lot of time actually collecting corn snakes in the area where the Burmese and the, and the, the bigger problem is the Argentine black and white tegus that are down there. Those, those are, could be a kind of a nightmare because that's an animal that can, the Burmese are stuck. Basically they're trapped in that basin. They're never going to really be able to move very far because the colds in Florida kill them. So it keeps them trapped right there, you know, in that South Florida area. The, the, the tegu though, doesn't care about the cold. It can, it can live in, you know, places where it snows because it, it hibernates for six months out of the year. So as soon as it gets cold, it it's see ya and it goes underground and it's good until, you know, it warms up again. So they, the spread of those is definitely could be a, a real issue. And what's the current state of say, if someone wanted to do what you did as a 15 year old kid and go catch random species, I mean, and out in the wilds of Florida <laughs> and yeah, and sell and trade them. Is I mean, is still that still, an a, sorry, still I an opportunity yeah. that is, you know, oh, out yeah. There people? yeah, I know actually quite a few people that do it for a living down there. There's always been like a lot of that. Again, they're removing invasives. So they're actually, in a way, they're doing the state a favor. Now, some of them have taken that and then taken let's just say they find a population of veil chameleons and then they decide well you know i'm going to take some of these and put them in a place that only i know about and start my own some of them have been mm -hmm. engaging in that behavior and that's a real that's a problem um but there are definitely some legit ones that don't do that and they're just i mean there i don't really see the point to that because there's plenty of those things you know where they are Right. So, I mean, other than you're setting up your own honey holes and which, you know, I think if they, that continues, I think you're going to see the state crack down on, on, you know, they're going to stop them from collecting them, which is then going to make the invasive problem even worse. worse. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, you know, I just wish everybody could just fucking behave. Do the right thing. You did right. <laughs> the fact that you're allowed to go out there and do this at all. Make money like off the right. land. You in a right. You don't have to produce these things. You don't really need to care for them. You get to go pick them and sell them. Like that's a rare opportunity that the rest of the country doesn't usually mm. get. So don't F it up. <laughs> I guess. Yep. Yep. Yeah. But you know, a lot of those invasive species have been there since at least since the 1950s. Green iguanas, we know from old photographs, um, they go back to at least the 50s. And there, there are even photos of taken in on the key, the Keys Railroad, railroad mm. near Key West, where there are green iguanas in the black background. And I think that was taken in the 1920s or 30s. So they've been in Florida for a long time. 
And is and that, I, I mean, was there a pet trade back then or how do no. you think they first came over? Yeah, we know there's real, I've never really heard a reasonable explanation for those, that key group, unless there's some thought that, you know, maybe, maybe Native Americans brought them over, you know, they had gone to, you know, like maybe some of the outer islands where they occur and brought them into and then released them into the keys to use as a food source. Um, I've heard there are other people that have maybe mentioned that perhaps that was part the natural part of the range of the green iguana at one time and then it got wiped out and then it came back. I mean, the ones in Miami are definitely pet trade. Um, and they've, they've, I mean, they're they're even in Orlando now, so they're they've gone up both coasts pretty heavily, pretty much the entire southern half of Florida. You can find them on almost any uh, waterway. So, but I don't really. I mean, other than undermining people's docks and you know digging holes underneath the concrete, they really don't damage anything. I mean, and matter of fact, I used to get in trouble from neighbors catching them in Miami. People would come out and yell at me to get the hell out of there. You know off their canal yeah they wanted them there yeah i can imagine half the people probably don't even know that they're an issue that they're right i mean i think what gets the attention is the berms and stuff like that which is weird because you say all this but the general consensus is typically of this is like a very modern problem like this just happened you know since hurricane andrew or you know whatever they think the exact i think that's attention you know yeah it it is definitely the attention uh the the, the, I was catching African rocks in a place called Medley, Florida um, in 83 and 84. And I caught everything from babies to 15 foot ones on this canal bank. And that was right in the city. I mean, wow. <laughs> people had no idea that these massive pythons were living right on this canal bank. And we used to catch a lot of caiman there and a lot of, uh, I caught huge uh, sailfin dragons and lots of iguanas and so, I mean, all that stuff was there. Um, and when I say make a living, you know, I mean, you know, you're, you're not making a lot of money doing any of that stuff. It's basically like a, you know, like a minimum wage, low end job. And it's definitely the guys that do it live a pretty hard living. You know, they, it's, it's not easy. It's a lot it's of grunt work. Yeah, exactly. Probably good work for a 15 year old kid. kid right. <laughs> really good for a 15 year old. Yep. So how did yep. your parents feel about that exactly i mean how did that whole situation happen i mean they they were reasonably supportive i mean they realized pretty early on that when their three-year-old was would go go outside and sit in front of the we had these two big metal trash cans and all the lizards would would hang out around there because it you know brought flies and bugs and stuff and when i was three or four that's what i did i spent my time out there trying to catch the big lizards that came to so they realized that that was one of my that was going to be my thing so when when i got about in the third grade or so they took me to a store and let me buy a real lizard which was you know it ended up being a night and all because iguanas got too big (laughs) and uh and then um and then you know it just it just kept going i mean when i was 10 they took me to another place and we bought another we bought a giant amoeba and so my mom had a no snake rule so they let me have lizards and turtles and frogs and stuff like that and it just continued to spiral by the time i was i was 18 i had pretty much a pretty extensive collection of uh you know i had a lot of boas a lot of pythons a lot of uh and a lot of big lizards so so that was i mean 
it just and it just kept going. And then, like you said, Hurricane Andrew flattened Miami, which I couldn't even get into most of the places where I was commercially collecting for for years. So it forced me um, at that point to have to. I basically had to make a switch. So I was doing some breeding, but I was relying on the commercial collecting to pay my bills. But Andrew forced me to swap that and to, mm. to rely on the breeding to pay my bills and to uh, make the commercial collecting just a little supplemental thing. So I did that in 92. And uh, that, I'm not going to lie. That was a hard transition. That was a rough year. But once I... Once I got the bearded dragons really dialed in, and at the time they were wholesale, babies were wholesaling for like a hundred dollars, which mm. even in today's market would be stupid money for a lizard that lays a hundred eggs a year. <laughs> right. So it was really easy to to so then, and I built everything pretty much off of three bearded dragons. I mm. used I used those. I kept babies back. I eventually had a colony of thirty, and then I used that to fund all of the projects into things like crocodile monitors and and tegus and you know and the blood boas uh, was something that i originated that that was from me going uh, so i had another gig because i lived in south florida i was surrounded by importers and since i was selling those importers and nulls i was i was at these places almost daily so when the new shipments come in i would go through them got first pick yep and i used to i used to pull out ball pythons i had a lot of the first ball python i think i had the second uh caramel albino um wow. and i paid nothing for these things like five bucks ten bucks i bought them as normals or you know i'd go in and buy a hundred lot and then they would let me pick and i pick out all the colorful stuff and then i would start to figure out oh man these some of these are hypos and some of these are you know i had so i was selling them for good money to all the guys that eventually went on to become big uh, ball python guys because I just couldn't, I never could, it just didn't click with me. I looked at those things like they were a freaking pet rock and, you know, and I never thought, I honestly, in retrospect, I was an idiot. They were paying me a lot of money for these, these morphs at the time, but not compared to what they would go on to do with them. But I just, I just, I, I couldn't see it. I never thought it was going to take off. And a good buddy of mine, Greg Graziani, we grew up together down in Miami. He he kept telling me, man, this is going to be the thing. And he was setting up all these. And I just kept thinking, dude, just stick to berms and read <laughs> This is never, this is never going to go anywhere. <laughs> Obviously it's, I was incorrect. <laughs> it's funny. Cause um, when we had Kathy Love on, she said some of the similar things about like digging through uh, the bins, but it, it's still, I can't imagine it. Cause right now I think like, Oh, we go to like Walmart and there's like a bin of like, candy or stuff oh you dig through it and you choose the one you want but they're talking about actual snakes a huge things just oh let me pick up this one oh let me pick up this one and I, I just can't even imagine what that's like going through all those yeah yeah it's i honestly it's kind of gone by the wayside i mean pretty much once the ball python thing got really really well known then you can't even the stuff doesn't even come in now like it used to like the exporters and countries of origin used to just they just send it all in so you'd get 500 baby you That's know ball so pythons crazy. and then and it would be a hot i mean there'd be all kind of interesting things in those bags sometimes so that when i found the blood boas that was a shipment of central american boas from el salvador and i happened to be there 
um, dropping off some anoles. And um, it was a friend of mine that had imported it. And uh, he had all these big sacks laying on the floor. And I, I was like, what's in those? And he's like, oh, we just got in Central American boas. And at the time, nobody cared about Central American boas. They were, they were considered like, you know, lesser than the red tails or the Colombians. No one really cared about them. But um, my wife at the time was like, we should really go through those and see if there's anything cool. And I was like, no, nah, there's not going to be anything cool. This thing, you know, and she wouldn't let me leave without doing it. And the second bag I opened up, there were four bright red, red snakes in it. And I grabbed those and I was like, wow, look at that. So I took those and then we opened up some more bags and we eventually found three black tailed anatheristics, which as far as I know, those were the first ones. And we also found three, which I now believe were either T-positive albinos or some sort of a hypo, um, all in one shipment. So we got seven, nine, ten weird snakes out of a single wow. shipment. And uh, then we went on to prove out the blood boas and that they were, you know, a recessive mutation. And, and Where was like the market on morphs and stuff like that at that point in time? And around uh, what time was it? So that would have been, um, that was like 92. Um, I tr produced and tried to sell blood boas for almost 10 years. I could, I could not even get a thousand dollars for them. Wow. I sold the product. I gave up in 99 or 2000 and I was like, you know, fuck this. I'm just going to work on these. I had all this tegu thing going on. I just produced the first albino blue tegu. So I was like, this is, this is my gig. And so I'm going to sell all the snake collection. So I, sold all the snakes off and then i kind of forgot about it and you can imagine my surprise when i walked i i kind of stopped going to the shows at the time i had a lot of tegus and stuff and i was really focused on that so you can imagine my surprise when five years later i walked into a into the daytona reptile expo and i saw blood boas being sold for eight thousand dollars and i was <laughs> like what the hell happened and well what happened was i sold it now, but what really happened was people finally decided that smaller was better, and these boas, you know, the blood boas stayed really small, and and then people started to realize, hey, if I comboed that up with an albino, it might make something really intense, which is what I was working on when I sold the project. But um, you know, it was cool to see. I mean, I'm glad. Honestly, morphs, I do, I do morphs, and and I like a lot of them, but that's never really been my my primary interest i really like like a lot of the rare and a lot of the naturally occurring stuff you know i like i like just regular bolivian boas the amarilla just the way they are and crocodile monitors and and now i have lace monitors which was my pretty That's much amazing that was my holy grail um never thought i'd get them they were always way out of my ability to afford them and then a month or month and a half, two months ago, two opportunities popped up at the same time, both involving those. And, and I jumped on it and now we've got five of them and hopefully wow. a gravid one. So, uh, yeah, I just, they're incredible. They're one of the, the most amazing animals I've ever worked with. Okay. What is it that Ele calls you to them so much? Um, I mean, they're super intelligent and, and that's part of it. Part of it is probably, an imprint that has been on me since I was from a long time ago, there was this Cogger book, um, Australian reptiles. And it's a really big, thick kind of a, 
a reptile book that most of us had, you know, in the 90s that we used to drool over. And in there is a picture of a Bell's Phase lace monitor. And that was the first time I ever saw it. And I have wanted them ever since, like bad. But, <laughs> but, but you couldn't get them. They just, they weren't available. And then a few years ago, they legally were acquired. Magically. Yeah. They came, well, these are, these came in with, they're legal. <laughs> but, um, yeah, they came Where did in, they come from? They came in from Europe. Uh, <laughs> the, the birthplace of a lot of legally acquired Australian wildlife. But, um, yeah, I mean, I honestly, I, they apparently, from what I understand, there was like some kind of a pipeline or some crap there where they were smuggling them in and they were getting confiscated. And when they get confiscated, they go to zoos. And once that happens, I guess then they're, then they can legally, you know, distri distribute them. I mean, I mean, I don't know. I don't know all the ins and outs of that, but that would, that's my basic understanding of how a lot of that stuff has become available in the last few years. They can't send it back to Australia. So it goes into the zoo system. The zoos are overwhelmed and over there, they seem more, more likely to sell or deal with the public. Um, and I say that I have a lot of zoo friends. So, I mean, it's not like there's a big divide in this country, but over there, it seems like there's more, uh, there's more trading back and forth with the private sector. So mm -hmm. they finally became available. And now that, I mean, it seems like someone who's doing it full time, I'm just wondering, cause there's a bunch of timing that has met up at certain points, or there's some timing that's been off, say, you know, when you're picking through ball pythons in 1992, you know, you would have had a much clearer idea <laughs> of what you were doing. Say if it was like 98 or something and you saw everything going on. So it's like, how much of what you do as a reptile like business person or someone doing it full time is like the market or timing or like getting into things because they're popular at the moment? Like, how do you balance that? Yeah, I mean, I do I do both. Um, and I've always had to do both. I kind of I, I, I always have. I basically we kind of have two two things going. I mean, I'm not particularly thrilled with producing bearded dragons and crested geckos. They're not, you know. I do it because they pay the bills and that's what people want. So, I mean, right now we're running, we produce a lot of bearded dragons. We have a, we have all of the high end crested gecko morphs, the new ones. And they're not something that, you know, gets me out of bed every morning to jump to. They're cool and they're fun. And, and we put everything, you know, we put the same amount of, of care and to how we produce them and the quality that we output for those. But would I be doing those if I didn't need to pay the bills with them? Probably not. I'd probably have a yard full of shit that doesn't make any money, but it's cool to look at. <laughs> um, but but over the years, I pretty much have found that it, that you know if I'm willing to throw enough of myself at it, that you can most things are producible and most things are profitable. If you really really care about it and you really go at it hard and all in, I've been able to make most of this stuff work. Um, monitors are a notoriously difficult animal to be profitable and and i've done a lot of them over the years and they they don't they usually they're kind of a negative they're a drain but now because mm -hmm. people are willing to pay more money than they were previously they were very undervalued so it costs a lot to produce a monitor and people weren't even willing to pay enough to basically just break even but it's changed and now that it's changed i'm going much harder on that and and that i hope is going to allow me to do what i really just love doing you know almost all the time so that's i guess that also falls into the wave though because right 
if Kevin McCurley hadn't started that whole urban dinosaur thing and turned a $50 water monitor into a badass thousand dollar tame pet, we probably wouldn't be talking about them today. They'd still be undervalued, but he, he showed people there was, there, there was value in them and, and he, and he got the market to accept that. So it's kind of, you know, this is a, a business of trends and waves right. and bubbles and, you know, so you just, I don't know. I, and I do it all, everything from tree frogs to I've done tortoises and turtles and I, I just do whatever, man, whatever just so, at the time. So obviously you kind of swung and missed on a couple of them. And I guess, let me get to your, to your question or my question a little bit. We have North Wales zoo in the chat who just asked how much did the original blood boas look like the ones that we see in the market now? Um, they were smaller and they were prone to, to, they had increasing melanin. So as adults, they, they had a lot of black on them and some actually one of the original ones turned nearly completely black. You could still see it was a blood boa, but they had a lot more. Now the pictures I see online and stuff now, they seem like they've kind of, I don't know whether that's from crossing it with Colombians. It's reduced the amount of, I think El Salvador boas naturally trended towards dark as adult. And I think the crosses have probably mitigated that. Um, so I, I, they definitely have changed. They don't look like the original ones. Um, and to me, I mean, I think in some cases they've changed for the better, but it's, I, I, I personally like the really dark ones. I think that added like a, and now you see they have that IMG boa that's a solid black boa. That thing's badass. So, I mean, I'm not sure if that was even something that, that maybe the Bloods had as well. Maybe that was part of it. Maybe that's even how it got introduced into the, I certainly didn't recognize it and didn't know, but they definitely did that. They would start out life very light colored, almost pink. And by the time the original ones were adults, they were nearly black. Wow. So they were cool. And they and, but yeah, they're a lot different. And I mean, I see that though with everything, uh, I, it, the, the difference now, um, uh, even the leopard geckos and blue tongues with uh, all these multiple generations of line breeding really shows in some ways, in good ways, some ways in bad ways. Um, so. Right. And now, like I was kind of saying before you, you definitely missed on a few projects that you <laughs> mentioned. Are there any that you caught at the right time and kind of uh, had a successful one? Actually, probably not. I think, I think, I think if you had to, you don't have that one, like $50,000 animal that just sold at the right time in the right place. No, I mean, even when I produced the first, uh, albino blue tegus, which, you know, I should have theoretically, that should have been my, my golden ticket. Honestly, I, I am not good at marketing. I fucked that all up. And in retrospect, looking back at it, I could have done a whole bunch of things differently that would have probably been the uh that would have been the hit but i mean when i finally my tegu farm basically collapsed in 2004 after i got hit by three hurricanes back to back wow. and i i was already teetering on the edge i had 250 adult tegus i was trying to mass produce them for the pet trade it was a stupid idea i was too stubborn and and pig-headed to admit defeat and change course instead i figured i tried to force a 
round peg into a square hole and it blew up in my face in 2004. But at that point I was selling albino tegus for two, for 650 bucks. And, and then I get out of them. I sell everything off. I, I basically walked away from the business for two years and had to get my head back together and figure out which way I was going to proceed. But um, when I came back, when I started doing shows again in like 2009, I saw albino tegus were back to, they were two grand, three grand, which is probably what they, where they always should have been. Um, but that was all me. I, I screwed it up. I was trying to do too much. It taught me a few lessons. And most importantly was the mass production thing is not my gig. I do not, I just don't like it because you, you have to make too many sacrifices in quality. I don't care how big you are and how much money you have. When you try to produce them on a scale like that, that things do, they, it, that's just how it works. And I've not, I've never seen anybody do it with that word. That hasn't been the case. You end up with a mediocre product. At least it's, you know, it's, it can be decent, but that's not what I want. When we send out something, I want to make sure that I, that that's something that I would want to receive. And so I just feel like it just, it just, I don't know. It, it was a combination of things, but. Um, it was pretty demoralizing. It took me took me years to get over that. I couldn't even talk about tegus until until about three years ago. I people would try to talk to me about them, and I was just like, "Yeah, nope, don't don't even want to hear about them." So, did you think about like doing something else for a living? I mean, obviously, it took you two years, but did you think maybe you'd get out altogether? Actually, I I was making money gaming, playing these MMO games, EverQuest, and final fantasy online and stuff and I, I was making pretty good money selling in-game currency for real life cash and i actually considered at one point doing that for a living and i'm glad oh. i didn't a friend of mine talked me out of it he was like man if you quit you know it's a, you're gonna regret this and so it's a good thing i didn't do it but almost for for a year that's all i did i i basically didn't leave the house i just i was playing everquest and and that was it um so almost from outside and stuff like tegus and (laughs) inside yeah do you think Uh, you could ever have a normal job no i don't i don't (laughs) think i I don't know i've been told i'm too feral to work for anybody else so maybe that's true i don't know I, i mean i i had a normal job for a while when my daughter was born so i was 19 i took a job as you know i worked at a restaurant for a while and I worked there for like a year and then went back to commercially collecting reptiles. I, it just, I don't know. I like being, I kind of, I like being on my own. I like being in control. I like having a say in everything, you know? So besides, I really can't do anything else but reptiles. I've, I, I'm pretty good at this and there it, it's stupid for me to try to do anything else. I'm going to suck at everything else pretty much at this point. So. Right. When you were commercially collecting and everything like that, were there people, I mean, even as a teenager, were there people that approached you that wanted to kind of come ride your coattails and do it with you? Um, Yeah. I mean, I had a lot of friends that were doing it also, you know, that would, you know, guys I used to hang out, out with would, you know, we, they would end up going their own. We'd all kind of coordinate. So, cause we had basically these routes, right? We would, we would drive, down the street in in urban Miami, and I wouldn't even get out of the car. I had this collapsible eight foot um, extension pole they used to use them to catch brim uh, 
fish, you know, and canals and stuff, but it's a collapsible telescopic pole. And I would cut them down to where they would collapse 18 inches. So I could ride with them in the front seat and have a noose on the end. And I could slide it out the window, noose the night and all, pull it into the truck and then drive to the next tree. And do it again. <laughs> the, tree, the, trees, the trees were spaced about, you know, a hundred feet apart. So you could, you could get, you know, 15 night and alls in two hours doing this method. And I taught all the, all the kids that I used to hang out with um, how to do this. So we were coordinating. I'm like, okay, I'm going to be in North Miami today. You go do, you know, Miami lakes or whatever. And, and that's how we did it. And, um, and there was a lot of guys also that were already doing this. I mean, it's been done in Miami. I wasn't the first one to do it. There was, there were other people doing it at the time and probably had done so for, you know, 20 years before I started doing it. I mean, what is the cast of characters like in the 80s Miami reptile importers? <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a real cast of characters there. There's some stories on that one. Um, I mean, I grew up around the Van Nostrands, which own Strictly Reptiles. Um, the, the, I had Pet Farm. Um, we had um, Mario Tabro, which is the owner of Zoological Imports that now has this tiger farm down in Miami. Um, so, I mean, I knew all those guys. I grew up around those guys. Those are the guys I mostly sold anoles and iguanas to. Um, it was a, there was, there was a lot of interesting characters. I mean, I had brushes with Crutchfield, uh, Bill and Kathy Love were in the, in the shops. I'd see them in there every once in a while. Um, a lot of the names, Bob Clark, I had seen once at one of the stores, Pete Call. So those guys all used to come down. They used to go through shipments when they could. They would buy, you know, the rare stuff. And yeah, it was it was good, man. I lived I I I was centrally located. I could drive 15 minutes and be at any one of six or seven import facilities. And um, so I was in the perfect spot to do what I do. I I was really lucky in that regard, and I got to meet a lot of very influential herpers um, pretty early on, which you know. And then I discovered the Bavaria magazine, which was Philippe de Beaujolais, uh, you know, and Bob Mayhew and those guys. And those guys were a huge influence because that magazine, I mean, that that taught us, that really drove home the point that herpeticulture was a thing, that you could do this and you could be successful at it. You just needed to use, you know, they, they drilled into all of our heads. It was common sense and, you know, learning where the animal li- is from and how it lives and then trying to adapt that but in a way that, you know, you don't have to actually mimic it, but you need to, you know, there needs to be some common sense and basic parameters and stuff. And I, I mean, I've used that to this day. So, um, so that was cool. And then we had the Daytona show, which used to be in Orlando and it used and to And that be, was pretty much like the first reptile show, right? At yeah. least on that scale. Yeah. I think that was the, that was the first. Um, and, and I mean, I remember, going there in 91 and 92 and there were like people from all over the world like all these guys you heard about that you know were in germany and and it was just that it was like tinley is today tinley is basically the real spiritual successor to that in my opinion i mean the daytona show is still great but it's 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 not what it used to be it used to be very much like tinley and um and it was it was it was eye-opening man especially for a kid that was trying to figure out if I could make a living doing this stuff. And I would go in there and I saw the first piebald ball Python there on Pete Call's table and it had this huge price tag. And I just remember thinking, man, that's, 
that's what I'm going to do, but I'm going to do this with lizards. <laughs> but, it, you know, it worked, but yeah, it was pretty cool. Like I said, I, I'm pretty lucky. I think it's just crazy. You know, the more people we talk about, especially during that time, it's like, you know, if you want to be an actor, you go to Hollywood. If you want to be in music, you may go to LA or New York. But if you wanted to do reptiles at that time, yeah, you're, you're in the, you're in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, when I was growing up, I mean, no one thought you could do this for a living. I mean, my parents used to say, you're going to need to get a real job at some point because you're never going to be able to make a living catching or selling lizards. There, there was really no, you know, it it just wasn't a thing like it eventually became by the, by the early nineties, it really had caught fire and and it's the 80s were basically spent building up to that so uh, i used to get crutchfield's list and and glades herp and all that it's weird thinking about it now now you just click you know and you can get it instantaneously and it's all right there and i still look at all those sites every day you know fauna and morph market and all that shit but back then you used to have to wait for the mail and it was every month and man i was there camped out at the mailbox waiting for those stupid lists to come in and then <laughs> looking at it, seeing if there was anything I wanted and on the phone then right away. So do you still have them or any of them? I did until I got a divorce three years ago and I lost pretty much. I lost my ex-wife took care of a lot of my memorabilia and, uh, and all of my, I had all, all the photos that I had taken of like like the first croc monitors hatching and all the tegu stuff yeah it's all gone but it is what it is but um someone out there has them yeah oh yeah there i mean i see them pop up on facebook every once in a while i haven't seen one some of these guys will repost one you know like crutchfield's list and and there was a place out in utah called zoo herp that was owned by louis porus that one that he used to put on an amazing list he had a lot of cool stuff so yeah them days are over and the market's a lot, a lot shallower now. There's not really the diversity that we used to have access to because a lot of countries have shut down and things are protected now and stuff. But I do, I do feel mostly though, the things that we have are the things that were suited to captivity. And a lot of those things just weren't really suited. They were too, right. too niche and too difficult for most people to keep alive. So it's probably not a bad thing. We've lost some of those. And it's like, it's interesting because I feel like, um, or I wanted to ask, was it more of the fact that there were people who were committed to doing reptiles and they were importing and there was all of a sudden a good supply of them? Or was there something that made reptiles pop as a pet in the United States at that time, say, you know, the early 90s? I think Jurassic Park had a huge played a huge part in that teenage mutant ninja turtles both of those things you definitely saw a serious increase in sales around and after those movies and tv shows and comics and stuff so that kind of stuff definitely pushed it into the into the pop culture and then you know the the popularity of bearded dragons leopard geckos and ball pythons those three things probably more than anything else pushed us into what this is now, which honestly, I never, ever thought that it would be anywhere near the size that it is today. 
I mean, it's pretty, it's, it's, if you would have told me 25 years ago that it would be this big, I would not have believed it because we were, we were used to be a pretty small community and we all knew each other, you know, in some way, if not directly, at least by reputation, but now there's, there's a lot of people involved and it's definitely been largely for the better. There's been some negative things that have come with it that, you know, people tend to point out and some of them are, are fair, but. Um, I think by and large, I think it's better that it has grown. I think we'd be in a lot of trouble if it hadn't. I think that's one of the things that kind of gives us some insulation and protects us from a lot of overreaching legislation is if you hit us too hard, you're going to hurt everybody's po- a lot of people's pocketbooks. And I think that's that's ultimately what's going to keep us alive. So if it hadn't grown to that, though, we'd just be these little niche weirdos in the corner that they could have swatted like flies and we'd been done. So it's been a it's been a good thing, I think. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if people realize that the very thing that keeps us alive in a capitalistic society against, you know, legislation and stuff like that is saying, hey, if you shut us down, you know, you're going to lose this many jobs here. And, you know, there's plenty of reptile. I'm sure importers and stuff like that who are employing, you know, dozens of people. And there's still places like Josh's frogs who has like a hundred employees. Like it's crazy. There's plenty of large businesses that see. Well, it's also a lot of the big box like PetSmart and PetSmart. They're supplied from, you know, reptile breeder. Right. Right. They're supplied by that. So if you, right. If you shut down that, you hurt PetSmart and Petco who have lots of money to talk with. Um, so it, it unfortunately and fortunately, money talks and money equals power and control. And we add, we, gotta... we add to the economy, you know, right. despite the, yeah. you know, negative about snakes getting out and hurting whatever, whatever we add to the economy. And just look at Tinley. How much money did we just make for the town of Tinley, Illinois, yeah. this weekend of all the people that came there? <laughs> And all the shitty chain restaurants around there. <laughs> yeah. Bananas alone loves us. <laughs> yep. Uh, but yeah. We, we're small, but we we add to the... We definitely have an effect on the economy in multiple different ways. And how is that different to say, I mean, going... You went to Tinley this year. Mm-hmm. You know, what is the difference between the people coming up, say, in Orlando and to Tinley? Um, if you're talking about Orlando, you know, in the nineties, it's, it's, it's very similar, actually. It's, you know, I mean, Heather and I also do what well, we did on the last couple of years, almost 30 Repticons a year, which, damn, yeah, I don't really have anything nice to say about that, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, but they, uh, you know, that's a different, that's definitely a different crowd. And, um, you know, you do run into some hardcores and you know people that really know what they're doing there but for the most part it's it's just people looking for a disposable pet in a lot of ways um so that is kind of the i don't know not really a fan of that but tinley is a lot like daytona and orlando um particularly what orlando used to be and you get you know people that are all really passionate really into what they what they are they i pretty much spent the entire weekend talking to different people but you know with it was great conversations which you don't really have a lot of those at repticons right but um you know i mean it's it's tinley's the show i mean we don't miss them we we're 
booked up for the next year. Um, and we try to make every single one of them. They are definitely, definitely worth doing. And we recently cut our Repticon schedule way down so we can possibly branch out to Arlington and do those two shows out there and uh, try to do less shows, but the bigger ones, especially with the roster of stuff that we have um, coming up, we have a lot of rare stuff and that stuff's not going to be sold at a Repticon. So, you know, I'd like to get back to only doing a few shows a year and have them be big shows and rather than all these little, little ones and, you know, they burn you out pretty quick. 30, 30 weekends a year on the road is. That's a lot. Yeah, it was too much. It definitely burned us both out. So. Um, and but, was, was most of your business being done at shows? I mean, all the animals you produce being sold at shows? Um, I mean, the stuff that ends up going to like the general public. Yeah. I mean, mo <laughs> most, most of the, most of the, um, most of the best stuff we produce ends up being sold to friends and, you know, kind of insiders that know us and stuff. Cause if I hatch something cool, you know, I'll call them first and say, Hey, look, I just hatched this. And you know, a lot of times that's where it goes. So it never even makes it to, you know, online. So we utilize a little bit of morph market. We were utilizing Facebook pretty heavily until they, their uh, system got crazy and started banning everybody. But um, we recently got our Facebook page back because it's apparently unintentional by Facebook, these bands. It has to do with their automated banning system. And if you jump through all the hoops that they require you through afterwards, they will give you your site back if you did get banned. Um, so but, were you around for the birth of Fauna? I mean, when I used to, Fauna used to be a little pamphlet you used to get in the mail once a month. It was a, <laughs> oh, it was I did a, not know that. Yeah, it was a little flyer. Um, it's much better as an online pub, uh, as the online uh, version, but yeah, I mean, still I, looks I, like so it's wait, 2000. Well, wait, was a pamphlet like like the online? Like it was a collection of a bunch of people who? Yeah, it was just a like a booklet of classified ads. There was no pictures or anything, and it was I don't remember how big it was exactly. I think it was like three or four pages, just stapled together, and <laughs> you'd you'd get it in the mail. And um, but I mean, that was one of those things you know you'd look forward to. That was how you. I used to actually advertise in there and that one end in uh, Vivarium and stuff like that. Um, and I used to sell on the, on Kingsnake a lot back in the day when it was at its heyday and, and Fauna as well. Those are both, I'm su honestly surprised they're still breathing. They look like, <laughs> they, they, they look like they're still trapped in that time zone. Like you said, yeah. it's like Kingsnake looks like 93 and 94 and, and, uh, and Fauna, Fauna like maybe. 2000. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, they're still going. So, and they still have a, a fairly serious following. I listed some stuff on there recently on Fauna, and we sold it right away. So, I was, uh, I'm, I'm really surprised. But <laughs> yeah, it's it still works. I yeah. mean, we post up there every once in a while. But yeah, Darren Watson in the in the chat kind of brought up a good point, like the fact that obviously you've been around for quite a while, and I feel like a lot of people have really become you know, over time they get like, oh, I don't want to do this new stuff. I don't want to put to a Facebook page. I don't want to go on a podcast. I don't want to have to do this and that. I mean, uh, it seems like you have really, you have kept up with the times more so, or do you feel like, or do you hate like the whole Facebook group thing or? No, not at all. Actually, like I said, I don't know if I told you that privately, I think, but I've been a hardcore PC gamer pretty much my entire life. So 
I have to stay up on the technology mm. because otherwise I'll get grinded up by 15 year olds. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and, and I listen to a shit ton of podcasts. I mean, that's when I'm cleaning cages, it's either, I either have that or music running at all times. And more often than not, actually you guys, I've been trying to get through your back catalog the last, uh, Oh no, don't listen to the old couple. ones. No, they're all good, man. Don't I do mean, it. You got, honestly, there's only a couple you guys and, and, uh, NPR are the two that I, that I definitely consider the best ones, but, um, you know, there's a lot of great podcasts and I listen to all of them to some degree. Um, and, and I've done, I don't know, this is probably the seventh or eighth one that I've been a guest on, I think by now. Um, but yeah, I mean, I stay on top of all that. I've been, I mean, Heather has Instagram. I just, I mean, I kind of use it a little bit, but it's not really my favorite. I, I like the more discussion oriented aspect and you get that more out of Facebook than you can out of Instagram. But Heather uses it pretty heavily for the, the business side of it. And it seems to be pretty good. And I do maintain a page, but I just, I just can't sit there and do the hashtag thing. And then you got to put like 30 of them. And I even made little, you know, so I could cut and paste it on. And then I put something different on there and I'm like, oh, now I got to create a bunch of freaking hashtags for this dumb mm -hmm. shit. <laughs> so, so when it comes to that, I'm kind of, where Facebook, I just slap it up there and whatever, it just goes and people share it around. And, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I like the technology. I, I, I'm talking to you on a, on an Alienware laptop right now. So I, <laughs> I keep, you know, I keep up with that stuff. And I don't, I don't think I'm going to be one of these guys with the get off my lawn sign when it comes to <laughs> the shit like this. So, and, and I mean, I've stayed relevant in the business by constantly, uh, I, I'm always working on new stuff. I'm not happy to just crank out the same old shit. Um, we've got the only albino night and alls in the world. We've got like seven or eight of them now. And so we're working on that. That's, I mean, it's a common lizard, but it's totally new ground. No, there's nobody that really breeds them. Um, and they're definitely pet trade friendly. So we're hoping at some point that I can really put those out there and that the, that the, the general public will see, Hey, look, this giant lizard is super tame when it's born in captivity. And we've got like five different color morphs, you know, we've got blue ones and possibly a piebald one and, um, and then a bunch of albinos and, two different types of albinos and stuff like that. So I don't know. I have so many things here. We hope to, we should produce some, the, the Mexicana Spilotes this year, which mm. there's not really a lot of those around and they're, they're badass. I, that's the only colubrid I have, but I, I dig those. They should. So. Kind of um, in the same realm as like changing times. I don't know if there's an exact answer to this question, and it might sound choppy when I get it out, but okay. So factions are normal in any group of people, right? Like little groups break off as far as the, the people who have been around for a long time. Do you notice there is a sort of split between the guys who stuck with their traditional or so ways as far as like care and hus husbandry versus the guys who kind of updated and changed? Or do you guys just all stick together because you've been there since the beginning? If that makes sense. Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I think there is some of that. I've never really been a part of any of those groups because I kind of, I like, I like, I, I tend to go back to original ideas a lot of times when I run into a roadblock, you know, where I think some, some of the new ideas we have are great and they've 
made big changes. I think some of the new ideas we have are just new ideas for the sake of being new ideas, and they didn't actually make anything better. And in some ways, they made things worse. In in the same way, though, if you stick to the past, you'll never you know move forward. And I think there are definitely some guys that I can think of right now that still do that shit, and and it shows. And everybody, you know, so I mean. I don't know that I, there are the reptile community is completely faction oriented. I mean, there's, there's a group for every specific thing and everybody has their, like, even when you go to Tinley, there's the Python guys or the ball Python guys are over here and the <laughs> right, guys right. are over there. And I'm kind of stuck in this weird middle place because I kind of do a little bit of everything. I mean, I, I read and I watch and I, I, I know a huge section of people from all of those factions and i keep in touch with a lot of them so because i actually for what i do since i do a lot of obscure and and i've done things that that were new um i've actually run into issues where i think that we tend to get tunnel vision if we look too much within our own like mm-hmm. you know our own community our own community our own faction so i will go either outside of that faction to look for inspiration or i actually will remove myself completely from the reptile business and I've, I've studied, you know, horticulture and aviculture and aquaculture. And I've looked at all over the years, I've looked at all of them uh, pretty extensively because you can get a lot of amazing ideas from other, you know, farm based, you know, or, or like aquaculture. There's tons. Of, I use a lot of aquaculture stuff. I use their tub systems. I use, you know, ideas that they have for, for terrestrial species you know because a lot of it you can convert it over and some of their ideas are better than some of the things we've been kind of tunnel visioned into and what i wish that we could get a little bit more of i think what would be interesting to our hobby at least from where we're sitting is like the the fact that fish people will spend five dollars on a fish but they spend two hundred dollars on the setup when it's when it's really in the reptile hobby, we go get a tub from Walmart for five bucks and we spend a thousand dollars on the animal. Yep. So it's kind of flip flop. And I think it'd be interesting to see pet keepers keep in a more, which I think feel like we're seeing now is yeah. keeping like a more dramatic fat. But, I mean, feel like see, what they were doing in like the nineties when they were transforming cabinets into all these giant enclosures and stuff. Like but I that. think it's both because, you know, we sell, some $30 animals and people, if the animal's $30, they don't want to spend that $200 on right. them. Cl- and I don't I, know I, why that's, I think there it's, there's both sides of, there's both sides of it. I think people like feeling like, Oh, if I spend more on this, I want to spend less on this. There's no matter whether it's but why the is animal it okay with fish. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think you're both right. I think that is, that is the reality of it. But like you said, it definitely is changing and it is going more in a, in a more, you know, you see like a lot more bioactive stuff nowadays. And, um, and personally, I don't see why everybody, I mean, I love bioactive. Let me rephrase that. I don't know. I don't really know about doing it indoors. Basically everything I've ever done. I prefer to work outside for a number of reasons, not the least of which it kind of, I don't really have to think too much about it. Are they getting enough UV stuff like that? You know, I get everything from the sun. It saves on electricity. Most importantly, I don't like to clean cages so that if you set it up right, you have this giant bioactive setup. If you're, as long as you keep densities low and you don't overcrowd things and 
you know, and nature takes care of everything for you. So that I like that. And I, and I don't understand why a lot more people don't really jump on that indoors. Now I'm not really sure exactly if how much of a pain in the ass that is to set up a bioactive tank, but cause I've never personally done it. Um, but I mean, there, there's a lot to be said for that. If you're not spending your time having to, you know, bleach out constant cages and everything is bioactive, you're not, you're not constantly screwing around with the animals, you know, and stuff like that. That does go a long way, especially for, you know, it doesn't probably matter for a ball python, but it matters a lot if you're working on, you know, lizards that are prone to stress or frogs and, you know, even snake species that are, have been, have proven difficult in the past to get established. So I think, um, and I just think it looks cooler. I mean, who doesn't want to walk in and see a badass tank, you know, with, with a snake curled up around a branch. I mean, I love that shit. So, um, I think it's going to be hard for us to sell corn snake people, parents who are buying a snake for their child on bioactive. No. Yeah. That's I don't, sure. I don't think we'll right. ever be able to be like, yes, also buy these little bugs and buy right. this and buy this. And no, this but I, I like the fact that it exists so that I think people will be more likely to get a weird species and have a pair of them set up bioactively. Yeah. Let me set up this pair of Baron's racers this way. True. There's, yeah. there's some yeah. markets out there that would not, Which I think it's cool ours. to where like just a few years ago, it was like, you get a pet snake, probably a ball Python, you get a spider and a pastel and you keep them in the tub and then you bring them together. So like, even if you have a couple pets, you're a breeder or you're someone right. aspiring to breed. Yeah. So, yeah. And I've seen that change a lot too. I mean, the shows are definitely, I mean, when I first really started doing shows three or four years ago, and, and I, I had been out of it for a little while, I walked in and I couldn't believe it, it was just all ball pythons. I mean, it, I did, it got to where I was just walking down the aisles, ignoring everything, looking for something that was different. There's a lot of awesome ball pythons. These guys have done amazing things with it. But I mean, you know, if the show is entirely made up of ball pythons, you, you kind of got an imbalance there. But now I see a trend the other direction and I see a lot more people, even the ball python guys, a lot of them are going back to doing things they used to do. I see a lot of colubrids, you know, a lot of um, different pythons, different boas and stuff. So that's cool because we are definitely closer to losing a lot of species forever than I think we've ever been. Um, what I makes think, you think that? I mean, every year they've closed more and more countries have closed down. They've had, you know, stronger quotas on the ones that are open. So a lot of those species are disappearing. And there, there's definitely a thing, like, let's just say, let's, I can give you an in, a personal instance, but there's lots of other instances out there. But so in 95 and 96, I was producing around 1,000 Pagona Barbata a year, which is a type of, it's an eastern bearded dragon. It's not the one that's typically in a pet trade. It's larger it it likes a more humid environment and it's a little bit more arboreal so i was i mean i was cranking these things out and i was selling them all over the place i stopped doing them in 1999 i they were just too hard to sell everybody wanted the viticeps and so i was like all right i'll just you know i'll scrap this project five years after i quit doing them they were completely absent from the pet trade oh, no. you could not find them and i i must have put out three to four thousand of those over the years that I was doing them. So where the hell did they all go? Well, they, they died out. They were misidentified, you know, probably sold as viticeps, mixed in, whatever. So 
even with those kind of numbers, once the main guy that was doing them stopped doing them, they were gone within a few years. So if you really have to have a whole bunch of people each, you know, you need to have a solid community producing these things. So a lot of those things like the Barron's racer, I mean, they're, I, I have a buddy that's got a pair um, that lives near me and they're awesome. If there's not a bunch of people out there, you know, maybe 25 or 30 people that are somewhat dedicated to that, that thing will eventually disappear and it'll be gone forever. So then we have a whole bunch of things like that, which is one of the reasons why now I'm pushing pretty hard to set up as many Varanids as I can, because I think those are one of the most things. I think those are one of the things we're the closest to losing forever. When we do, people will notice because everybody takes it for granted now that, you know, that you have access to all these monitor lizards, but when they're gone, they'll be gone. And um, so I think those of us that can, especially if we're, you know, if you're in a Southern States where you can keep them outside, um, you can set up a lot of these larger monitor lizards and, and maybe have some sort of a miniature, you know, assurance colony or an arc. And if they do cut them off, maybe more people will, will jump in on whatever's, you know, here and, and work at it. We just more as a community, I think we need to, we need to work on stuff like that and be, be cognizant of the fact that we take a lot of stuff for granted. And um, if you've been in this for even 10 years, you, you, you surely must notice that there has definitely been a, um, a lack of biodiversity within the trade. It's definitely gone backwards and pretty substantially. So do you think that is partially because of people getting into it for money instead of passion or not getting into it, but oh, maybe getting into it it's for passion and then chasing the money instead of chasing their passion. Well, I mean, even I'm guilty of that to one degree after I burned out um, on my, on my Tegu thing, I took, like I said, I took two years off and um, I really wasn't going to go back into doing it. But a, a buddy of mine that works for reptile industry, Steve Moy came to see me and he's like, dude, what the fuck are you doing? You're just sitting around playing video games. You can't keep this shit up. And I was like, yeah, you know, I just, I'm not feeling it. So he talked me into breeding bearded dragons again for them, for their Petco and PetSmart, I guess, uh, whatever. Mm -hmm. So I spent, you know, 10 years just doing that. And I, I did nothing else but that. And I pretty much hated every minute of it. But it paid the bills and it kept me floating. And and um, it wasn't until like 2013 where I really started to, you know, get over what had happened in 2005 and um, and started to get back, you know, doing it for the reasons that I really do it. So I can't really fault anybody for that. Bearded Dragons were one of those things that were super hot and they were paying the bills and they were it was easy. It was just it was an easy way to make a living. And I think that. In a large part, a lot of the guys that that used to be like re, they used to produce like fifty different species of colubrid and all the different pythons, they all jumped out to get into the ball pythons because all of a sudden you went from, you know, making, you know, probably a bear. None of us really make. There's really not a lot of money in this business. Let's be honest. None, I don't. I have never met any of us that I can think of that I would classify as wealthy unless they had money previously. So most of us that have done this for a living, you know, you make a living. That's what you can bet. And, and the, the real, the, the reward really is the job that you get to get up every day, you know, and do something you like doing. You're not dragging your ass to a job you hate, you know, and stuff like that. 
but I think, so I think when these guys realize, Hey, the ball pythons, you know, I can actually make money and, and still, you know, do this. I think they all jumped into that and they abandoned the other stuff because it just didn't make sense on paper. You can't really justify producing a doom rules boa that you can, that sells for a hundred bucks and cost five times, you know, what it costs to produce a ball python. So, and the ball python sell for 10 times what the doom rules boa sold for. So it's just kind of an economic thing, I think. And, um, and it lasted much longer than I thought. And, but now you can see that things are going back because I've been getting, con I've been contacted by a lot of those guys recently asking me, you know, what I think about this project and that project, and they're all jumping into different stuff. So it was just part of a cycle. I think it, like all of them, they tend to fix themselves over time. It was just unfortunate timing because at the same time that was going on, there were less and less species becoming available, you know, and things were disappearing. So you had the stuff that was already established in the trade disappearing on its own because people stopped working on them. And then you had the supply of outside sources disappearing. So it was kind of like a double, a double whammy there. Um, right. That's, that's just how I see it anyway. I could be totally wrong. <laughs> no, I think, I mean, at least I, I know nothing, but I think that's my interpretation of it too. Um, and I think it takes a lot of people realizing, oh, there's too many of us chasing it for the money. You know, there's too many. Of, it takes the ball python people to recognize, hey, there's too many of us doing this. Some yeah. of us need to go. It was do something also else. kind of like, a false market. It's more like trading cards, the market for trading cards, than it is for an actual market. It's just, yeah. it's all based on nothing. No, I think you're just selling a, a snake for fifty thousand no, dollars for no reason. There's a market. Almost every person that comes in every almost every person that comes to our table and we they say like oh i have a snake at home 90 percent of those are like oh it's a ball python like there's a mark there's the market it's definitely out there and there's still many of those first time snake yeah yeah but those are people who are snake. buying low level True. Animals. the high level ball python it's more of the yeah. the people who were at daytona coming home with 200k at the end of the show yeah like like that was a real thing yep They'd have to spend 50k on a new morph the next year, but <laughs> right, yeah. I like I said, the I, I like the morph thing. You know, I I work on. I have a bunch of them here that I'm working on right now. But it just, um, I have a hard time with that super high end ball python thing because I look at that and go, how is that worth that? You know, I mean, it's it's still just a freaking ball python. I don't care what kind of paint job you slap on, and a lot of those things, I. I see at these shows, people are like, oh, this is so-and-so. And I'm looking at it, it, looks like a brown ball python to me. And I know reptiles. And I'm just, I look at that and go, I don't, I, I, they're like, oh, well, it's got this blushing on the side, you know? And I'm like, I'm like, all right, well, whatever, if that works. But I mean, yeah, I, I think, I feel like it is kind of like a trading card, kind of a false market thing. It's in that, in, on the upper end of it. But like she said, it's like a, it's like a real thing though, on the lower end. Oh, so, yeah. The sub one thousand dollar thing is definitely, uh, you know, that's a that's a legit thing, and it's done a really good service to the industry. I think it's probably our protective bubble mm -hmm. for for the rest of us. Is that is that market? So while some parts of it drive me crazy, and and, <laughs> and the uh, and the, I just I don't know, man. I I'm just not that guy that's going to go with these matching suits and this slick setup and all that, you know, commercial, the really super commercial end of it. I just, it's not that I, I just don't care about that. So 
I see how they do it and they pull it off and it works well, but that's just not my gig, man. I, I just want to make crap and have somebody else sell it for me. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think it's definitely, yeah, it's still a thing that you can produce animals under a hundred thousand dollars, you know, 80 clutches a year and make a living out of it. I'm sure it's just oh, yeah. that you have to have, you have to work for it now, <laughs> I suppose, rather than just you're depending on a couple genes that were very, very expensive and, you didn't have to produce 80 clutches or the high number of animals. Yeah. I mean, and honestly though, that may not necessarily be a bad thing because you kind of, you know, you, you, you can't suck and you can't be an idiot anymore. So, you know, you have to be good at what you do. You have to care about what you're doing. So I think that if that's the kind of thing that it takes to, you know, make that separation, I mean, I think that's a good thing. I have noticed that a lot. Uh, I know I, I have noticed over the years the general um, time frame that most people decide they're going to get into this but end up getting out usually is about two to three years. And then they kind of realize that this is not a glamorous life by any means and that it's actually a lot of, you know, uncertainty. And, um, you know, I mean, there's some every year before breeding season, it's nail biting time because you're out of stuff to sell and you're wondering is this stuff going to lay again? And is I, am I going to get, you know, is it all going to be fertile? Am I going to get enough, you know, to survive till the next year? So that kind of stuff, a lot of people can't handle that kind of uncertainty. And um, I think that's what, that's more than anything that really, you know, grinds people out. Um, but if you can handle that, you can definitely make a living at this. I've been doing it forever and I have no intentions of not doing it. It's, it's definitely doable. You just have to, you know, you have to be smart about it. And I've done all the stupid things, so <laughs> I, can, I can pretty much tell you what not to do. I can't tell you what to do, but I can definitely tell you what not to do. So is there, I know there's a lot of uncertainty in it, but is there something that you feel has promise in the next few years as far as the reptile market goes? Um. Actually, most of it. I mean, I mean, uh, there's new morphs and new projects pretty much in all the sectors. I mean, I, I see you're a corn snake guy, right? That's what you two do. Mm -hmm. And I, I see that. I, I, you guys seem to be doing pretty well. I mean, the corn snake thing in general. Um, and I hear I get asked a lot from my old wholesale accounts if I have access to wholesale corn snakes. So there's def I wasn't hearing that for a long time. So, well, yeah, Amel's used to be a $15 snake that people were trying to get rid of. Now, I mean, we can sell an Amel for like 75 bucks, which is just kind of ridiculous. Wow, that's, yeah, that's, see, that's An animal good, that's been bred since, <laughs> the Dr. Bechtel bred in the... Yep, 80s, I think, or 70s. Even earlier, yeah. I, yeah, I think he like, may have done the first breedings in like the late 50s, like 59. What? I may be making that no, up. I don't know. I got to no, read no, right in front of me. You might be right, yeah. I, I, the 50s? Yeah. He was one of the originals. That is literally like who built this whole thing. This yeah. whole the fact did, that did any of his descendants take it on? No, no. <laughs> you mean like a child or something? <laughs> yes. What else descended? No, <laughs> his snake descendants. Did they just? <laughs> That's what I always. I wish. I don't know. Snakes were more of a family thing, and you have like the line of like generations of people, and they have stories passed down. I feel like you don't hear, even though the snake world has been going on for so long, I don't think you hear too many people. Um, so I was oh, way okay. off and Ron was right. What is so 
it says that Dr. Bechtel determined it to be a simple recessive mutation and published his findings in the Journal of Heredity in 1989, which is a lot later. Oh, than way I later. Yeah, I thought it was in the 80s. I think he actually did that in the, like 83, though, or something. I think it just took a while for him to get that published. But Gosh, Yeah, I think yeah. it's because he was working with recessives. I'm sure it took him a bit. but Yeah, I, he used to be my go-to guy that I would call when I got a new ball python morph out of a shipment or something. And I would take a photo and send it to him in the mail. And then he would call me back and say, hey, I think this is this. That's where I got my – because I, I honestly didn't know anything about genetics or morphs when I first started doing that. Um, I was all about the species and stuff. And, and I got my cursory uh, education from Bechtel on that. And he was he was cool. He was really easy to talk to. and and he would he would go over it and look at the photos and say, okay, well, I think this is like the ghost balls that I used to pull out. He was like, that's a form of hypomelanism. And so, so. And was that just all like Spanish to you at that point? I mean, were those common terms in the hobby? No, I, I had to do some reading. Um, yeah, I'm I, I I I'm one of those guys that I research everything. If I have an interest in it, I do it on my own. So, um, so I. I just started getting books and, and, and then when the internet, you know, became a thing, I, I used to spend a lot of time reading stuff like that. I mean, I still spend a lot of time on Google scholar going over research papers on stuff that I'm interested in. So, so yeah, I had to learn all that stuff, but I mean, we all, we all kind of get it that way from one of the, you know, either somebody else or, but yeah, that was, uh, that was, uh, he was a good guy. He had a lot of stuff. Um, that book you're looking at that that was one of my favorite books i i love that book yeah it's old and outdated now but yeah it was it was pretty cool there's all those cool morphs in there that that you had never seen before that book came out so yeah and was that i mean especially when you started to see morphing all that stuff going on i mean was it was it sought after? Was there always a group of people who would be like wild types over morphs? Was it always uh, different factions like that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's it was always that way. But I mean, you know, like most of the big guys that were really pioneering stuff, like Bill Love and Bob Clark, those guys were all morph guys. They were smart enough to recognize that that was. Uh, there's a couple reasons for that. One, it kind of it kind of um, insulate you from imports and wild caught stuff because mm. it's easy for somebody to flood the market with something imported or wild caught and make it cheap and then you can't so if you have morphs you're the only one or you know one of a select few people that have them so it gives you some insulation and you know you can it makes it profitable so i think that was that was probably one of the primary motivators and then we realized hey we can make cool shit and people will buy it so in a way, is that kind of the savior of a species in captivity in the herp in herpticulture as far as, you know, say maybe if there was an albino barnack scrub python, maybe more people would be producing albino barnack scrub pythons? If you'd asked me that 10 years ago, I would have said yes. But now I'm not so sure. I mean, I, I, when I look around at shows and I look at stuff, I see a lot of very, very widespread common defects. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of heads have gotten smaller, you know, 
tails have gotten shorter. You know, there's all these things that you see that that it's clear signs of too, uh, you know, maybe inbreeding depression or too much line breeding without without doing, you know, thoughtful outcrossing, I guess it's the race has been on, you know, it's pretty, everything is pretty much a race. I mean, I'm guilty of that myself when I, in the past, I've gotten a, a morph that I project that I bought into. And the goal is to be the one that gets the most out the quickest. I mean, that is what it is, even though people say, no, no, it's, it, that's not it. And everybody knows it. You're not the first guy that does it. You're not, you know, it, so so there's a lot of that in the competition aspect, and that has had a negative effect. And that's one of the reasons why I've kind of backed out of that. I just I didn't realize how big of a problem it was until recently. And and then as I started doing all these shows and looking at all this stuff, I started seeing all these defects. And animals look, in some cases, they look weaker in general than mm-hmm. they used to. They're not. You pick them up and they're kind of floppy. And some of that could be just general husbandry and. But I think a lot of it is is we're just we've gone too far down that rabbit hole um, and we've put much less thought than we should have into genetic diversity and outcrossing. And, you know, I mean, it's totally fine to do line breeding. That's the, and it's totally fine to make these morphs. It's what we do. But I think I think we have to do a better job of being more concerned about the quality of the stuff we're outputting and less about being the first one to make the most. And, you know and get the price out so for my part in that i have definitely i bought into some crested gecko projects a couple years ago uh, last year and if i would have followed my traditional route i would have a wall of them with hundreds of them by now and i'd be breeding them all next year and making a a ton of them but i've chosen not to do that i'm just going to take my time what however long it takes and when i when i do finally get them out i I will definitely be behind a bunch of other people, but at least the ones I put out, I'll feel good about that. I did what I needed to do, um, which not going to lie. That's a different direction for me when it comes to that kind of stuff. When it comes to things like, you know, like lace monitors and crocodile monitors, I've always cared very much about having unrelated ones and, you know, doing that stuff. But uh, when it comes to the morphs, I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody of just trying to get them out in numbers as quick as possible and into the trade. And I think uh, now that I've seen the negative impact that that has and is having on the trade as a whole, um, I think we all need to put the brakes on that a little bit. I think I think at some point we I used to hear from breeders, at least of a generation, at least two to three times before mine, that they were captive breeding and also choosing for babies who fed well and thrived and we don't seem to select for anything but the phenotype now i don't yeah. think we just breed for looks for color for pattern and that kind of thing yep and that's a problem and see one of the things that really started turning me or changing my perspective on that um was when heather and i got together three years ago she had been breeding bearded dragons for 14 years and i had been doing them for 30 years and when I saw her bearded dragons, they were so much bigger than mine. And so, and they were, they were, they weren't as bright. Mine were freaking bright red, you know, and hers were still amazing, but they weren't as red, but her animals were, they had big heads and they looked like, you know, they were super robust and mine were half the size of what they should have been. And, 
And that really, when I saw that, I was like, holy shit, I guess this really wasn't necessary that, that I, cause I would, I, with the beard dragons, I was only holding back for phenotype and, you know, the ones that looked the best. I didn't care, you know, if it was, if it was a little bit on the small side, I put the extra work in it to get it caught up, you know, stuff like that. That's a big problem. And it really does show, uh, down the line, you know, pretty quickly, actually. And she wasn't doing that. And she had all these massive bearded dragons that were like, you know, the ones I used to see when I first started my original ones. And um, so that really, I started to rethink how I look at this. And the problem with the bearded dragons though, is that there's really nowhere to go. You can't bring in new blood. There's the, the all of the ones all around the world are more than likely all very, very closely related because we've been trading with everybody back and forth for the entirety of the time that we've been producing them. So they're all probably damn near clones um, at this point. And uh, so you, it's really hard to make them better because you can't just bring in new blood. And so we did acquire a couple of Pagona Barbata from Germany two years ago, three years ago, and she cro she made crosses with them to, to hopefully, you know, try to get a little hybrid vigor in there. And it does seem to have had a pretty good effect on them. Now they're, now they're three generations, you know, bred back to Viticeps. So they're for all intents and purposes, they are Pagona Viticeps now, um, but they are stronger, they're bigger. Um, so it does seem to have helped that a little bit, but you know, one or two, you know, breedings of a Barbata aren't really going to fix an entire species, but that species is, is pretty, pretty screwed up now. I mean, they don't live as long as they used to. They, there's all these things that we're seeing with them. They're prone to adenovirus, which, you know, is found in them in nature. They, they naturally have it. Even in Australia, they find it there, but you know, it's, it seems like it, because they're weaker now, it does more damage to them in captivity, whereas they probably lived with it just fine prior to this and probably have an ancient relationship with that virus. So is that something that's happening that's similar to what we're seeing in pythons with nidovirus? Yeah, I mean, if you look at it, all the commercially produced species have something like that. You know, leopard geckos have crypto, the pythons have nido, the, you know, I'm sure that all of the commercial species have a similar something. thing. Yeah, and I think that in most cases, it's probably not a problem. And the only reason we start seeing it become a problem is because we've, we've inbred them or, or, and, and they're gotten weaker. And so, and then all of a sudden it starts to kill them. Whereas previously, you know, it didn't really have the, quite the effect that it had. I think, I think that's probably part of that problem. That could also be, you know, viruses change and the viruses just could be getting worse. I mean, could be a husbandry thing, but I mean, when you find that, when they find them, I don't know about NIDO specifically, but with adenovirus, we know that they, all of the ones in the wild almost that they test, come back positive so they have it they live with it and they're not dead all over the australian countryside either right so obviously the relationship they have with it just like humans carry tons of viruses that don't affect us at all we just walk around with them and they're just there um, so it's only when that immune system is compromised, compromised. Oh, yeah. yeah yeah and i think i think that's i think our husbandry honestly and reptiles in general is still very, very much in its infancy. I know people think we've got it all figured out, but I think even on the things we think we have figured out, we hardly have that. Um, so, well, what do we do if we don't have the Florida sunshine? 
yeah, I mean, I mean, technology's changing. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think, you know, I, I'm not really sure, man. I just, I think, you know, I, I was, I, so I'd worked outside for pretty much my entire life, just exclusively outdoors. I always kept snakes indoors, but snakes are a little bit of a different, you know, story, but with lizards, keeping them outside is hugely different. But in 2016, when I got a divorce, I had to move my shit into a warehouse. Man, that was an eye-opening experience having to work indoors. That was totally different game. I had to relearn pretty much everything. Um, and I have a newfound respect for you guys that work inside because <laughs> that sucks. <laughs> I mean, I literally, I've never cleaned so much in my entire life. Every day, cleaning, you know, and especially when you have lizards and bearded dragons in particular indoors are a joy because they can paint the walls. So wait, so you've been breeding bearded dragons outside this whole time? Yeah, in Florida. Wow, and they do fine with the humidity and everything. Yep. The humidity is a non factor. The the only thing I, I'm not I mean, I know they come from a desert, but I mean most lizards that live in the desert, they live in the humid parts. They seek out humid areas. They live under tree trunks where the the where the dew is locked in, you know, by the by the roots and they seek out the humid areas, but the only issue I ever had in Florida is in the spring and the fall when we'll have a front come through that'll stall out over us for maybe five to seven days and it'll keep the daytime temperatures in the seventies and, and it'll be cloudy. There'll be no sun that will cause bearded dragons to get respiratory infections. So mm -hmm. I figured out a long time ago that if I just cover them with clear plastic sheets, it turned the, their cages into little greenhouses mm -hmm. That even even if it's yep even if it's cloudy enough you know sunlight gets through that it warms it up and it'll still be ninety degrees under there even if it's wow. seventy so it totally negated that problem but I we, we leave them out all the time they they get daily rains in the summertime they wow. they're actually all come out to be in the rain and they drink and you know they look better in than in the drier months so yeah they now. You know, maybe breeding them for thirty generations outside. Maybe I've, I've made them more uh, Florida tolerant. But um, but yeah, I mean we've got we've got a hundred dragons outside right now. And uh, is there so, something to like the fact that there's some species of tortoise that if they're born in Florida, they grew up acclimatized to that climate. Is there something to that? Even if it's say a bearded dragon, you don't want to put it directly outside or. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's, that could very well be, you know, a phenomenon that's occurring in them. I've, I've wondered that myself and, and that's probably, there's probably some truth to that. Um, so that could be it. You know, maybe ones that come out of Florida are just more humid tolerant because they're in, they're basically, you know, we're, we're immersed in a, in an invisible pool of water here pretty much all the time, you know, it's always super high. Um, so, you know, maybe, I mean, on the flip side, I've tried to do Euromastics out here a few times and it's failed miserably. So, um, they're, they're definitely, but those are imported animals from country of origin. And mm -hmm. you know, maybe if I could get one or two generations to, to survive down here, maybe I could eventually get them fully outside. But, we are actually going to start working on Euromastics again, but that's because we have this build. We have a 2000 square foot building now on the property that has a four bay doors and a huge slab in front of it. So we're going to build roll in, roll out 
enclosures that we can roll out when the weather's good and roll them back in when it rains. And that'll allow us to do some Euromastics and some other desert species, I think. So. Um, okay, I want to jump back into annuls real quick because um, Chuck Horn in the chat has some really good annul questions. I bet and, he did. Um, we just we don't know anything about them, so I think there's lots of questions we don't even think to ask. Right. Um, and so I definitely uh, wanted to ask his questions. Okay, he said this one was priority. He prioritized them, which is mm -hmm. super helpful. Um, so you said, how does he think Cuba's request to include several giant anole species in CITES will impact getting new bloodlines from our European counterparts? Yeah, I've heard a lot about that um, the last couple of weeks. And from what I understand, that could be much more difficult um, than it has been. Apparently, um, there was pretty much free trade going back and forth on them because they were not listed and and now that's put a big block in it. So I don't really know. I would imagine, though, we'll still see them trickle in. I just I just think it'll it'll be harder. But I don't really when it comes to international trade, I really am not qualified to speak on that because I really don't know all the ins and outs. Um, but I forget who I was talking. I was talking to an importer the other day um, who basically told me they thought that it was it was going to be virtually impossible. Mm. So I don't know. I think maybe what we have is now locked on this side of the on this side of the world. So do you think if you know if it's Cuba's I'm assuming since Cuba's put in the request, Cuba is what the country that's having the issue with them. Do you think I mean any new things restrictions or anything should be only like Cuba specific or Yeah, I mean from what I was told, they have um, they saw some Facebook postings of someone in the U.S. who had some Cuban giant Cuban species that were previously unavailable that they claim have never been made available, and that's what sparked this. So they're basically saying that they were smuggled as one species, but they're really another species. And that's why they wanted them all put on three. So it limits the trade in them and they all require paperwork. So I don't really know. The, the Knolls, like I said, there's such a small market. There's hardly anybody that works with them currently. I mean, they're, I, the, a lot of the gecko guys have expressed interest over the last couple of years since I started messing around with the albino ones. So I think we're going to see eventually because an anole basically is a diurnal gecko. There's, they eat the same foods. That, you know, a lot of they're very similar to rachidactylus and you know leeches and stuff like that. And care care wise, other than needing a UV and some minor heat. Um, but yeah, I, I I don't know with that that whole thing. I honestly I was surprised. It kind of came out of nowhere. I don't think any of us knew that was going to happen, and it just happened like two or three weeks ago, I think, at the last site was meeting. So I would have honestly thought Chuck would know more than me because he, <laughs> he is the old guy. <laughs> so I've actually had to go to him for questions. That's funny. Um, his first question was, have you been able to pair up your Western night annuls? I do have them paired up. Um, I haven't gotten anything yet, but they're actually, they're set up in a way where, um, I gave up trying to incubate night and all eggs. Now I just let them lay in their potted plants and I let them hatch in the ground and then I catch the babies when they come out. 
So I'm hoping there's eggs in there. Um, we'll find out soon. <laughs> but yeah, they're paired up, so maybe we'll get lucky. Um, yeah, that's a project that a few people are interested in. So, and then similar, um, he said, or with the knights, uh, were you able to dial in your humidity misting watering concerns that you thought would help with the knights? Um, yeah, I. So I started basically uh, making sure they get due at night. I was I recently came to the conclusion that 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 was probably a big problem with the anoles in general is that we weren't really simulating nightly dew. So I started doing that and it made a big difference in how I was keep able to keep them hydrated. Um, so yeah, I, I, I didn't end up doing an, a system instead of doing it manually. I kind of basically go out at night on nights where the dew doesn't naturally occur. And then I spray them with a hose at night, soak them down so that they're, they get it that way, but yeah, it, it has made a big difference. And nightly watering anoles at night, and actually, I'm doing it with a lot of species, including bearded dragons. Hmm. Um, I found that watering them at night and simulating dew, you end up with they just they're much better hydrated. They just look better, they act better, because that is the way that most desert species and arboreal species would be getting their water is from dew drops. So. Ever since I started messing with that, we're going on like two years of experimenting. But yeah, I'm very, very happy with the results. It's It's been a, a game changer as far as that goes. So is it recommended for someone just keeping, you know, one anole inside to have some type of water source like you would for a chameleon that's moving? Is that the thing? Is it do they need like a flow of water or water that is misted on them or? Um, well, I, I actually do both. I have water bowls and they, they will use them. I, it's actually kind of a recent thing for me because I, I was previously under the impression that anoles won't drink from water bowls, just similar to what you said. And um, I was at a show and a buddy of mine that had bought some anoles uh, from me, but indirectly came by to show me them and they were huge and they were amazing looking. And I was like, dude, what the hell are you doing with these? These look better than mine. And he was telling me going over what he's doing and and the one thing that he was doing differently is that he keeps a water bowl in all their cages and i was like have you seen him drink out of it and he's like yeah they drink out of it all the time he doesn't even miss them so i was like wow that's that's interesting so when i got back that day actually i put water bowls in all the anole cages and they've been there ever since and i have seen one or two of them down there drinking now my cages are set up for the anoles in such a way that they're so heavily planted that it's really hard to see them in there. They, they can hide very well. And so you only get glimpses of them here and there. Um, but yeah, so I do that and I also spray. So I, I would, I would say that if you were just getting an anole, I would offer a water bowl, but I would also mist them down, um, once in the morning. And then once when you shut the lights off and the reason that you want the lights off is that I found that a lot. I think a lot of the species we keep in captivity, arboreal stuff, especially, even though we think they're getting enough water, I think they're always borderline dehydrated because I think um, if you look at a lot of the common problems that are reported across the spectrum with arboreal lizards, arboreal snakes, they're all very similar and they're all pretty much tied to hydration issues. And almost all those things, they, they, they live in these trees where they the dew collects on them every night every night they're immersed in a water vapor 
and and they're drinking dew droplets off of the coils if they're a snake, off the leaves if they're a lizard, and, and maybe snakes do that as well. So um, I think by not doing that, I, I think we're so if we just give them water through a water bowl and and most of the water is offered during the daytime via spring it's kind of like trying to fill up a cup that you're constantly draining because you're heating it up at the same time so you're removing it as fast as you're putting in if you do it at night they have the entire night to fully fill up to yep to soak it in and immerse themselves and i've seen a huge difference in the anoles because anoles are so um you know they're they're so susceptible to to any kind of husbandry error that it shows in them right away. Um, whereas a snake, it, it might be harder to notice and it might take a, a much more time. So, so I started doing that kind of stuff and, um, and I have noticed a substantial uh, difference in the animals that I am doing that with. So, so even in Florida where they're invasive, it's still not a set it and forget it. They'll be, they'll thrive and reproduce readily out there. Still I mean, experiment. Yeah. I mean, if they were, if they were, if I let them go where they had the, you know, a full range, you know, they'd be fine. But yeah, when you, when you enclose them, you're, you're, you're basically, you know, you are in charge of the parameters that that little cube or whatever you have them in it experiences. So yeah, if they were in the wild, they would be able to go to where they needed and find the stuff that they wanted to. Um, but so yeah, even, even, even stuff that's na that's native or, invasive <laughs> yeah it, it required and i've actually had more problems with those fucking annuls <laughs> anything else that i've ever worked on i have rebuilt the system eight or nine times since 2013 and i'm about to tear it down and rebuild it again because i'm still not happy with it i have yet to find something that allows me to um to get the eggs reliably uh, in an outdoor setting it's very it's surprisingly difficult. They lay one egg. They can lay that egg every three to seven days. It's about the size of your thumbnail. And so they don't lay in pairs like other no. like geckos do or anything like that. No, nope, a single egg, and they're really good at hiding them. They like to put them in the, the. Basically, if you have them outside, you really need to have a potted plant in there. They're really good at hiding them in the potted plants. The the. You know, those plants, if you're using five foot plants, those plants are expensive. So every time you have to pull it out, if you have to pull it out every seven days out of the pot to find okay, a, it's not surviving. Exactly. So it's a, there's all these issues with I they will not lay in any kind of lay box that I've been able to that I've found yet. I mean, I'm sure eventually I'll find something that'll be attractive to them. But so far, 10 or 12 different iterations have failed. And um, I feel like there needs some like underground net net trap thing yeah i don't know you know like something that's like covered in the dirt that you can somehow i don't know i have no idea There's what i'm saying but yeah i don't know some sort of net catch you know something that they'll want to put in the net that they'll want to drop eggs in because it's like surrounded by dirt but something that you could easily like take out the whole net i don't know yeah, I mean, I've tried something similar to that. I've denied them the ability to lay the eggs in the potted plant, and I put a second pot next to them without a plant in it, but with all the dirt. And then they just lay the eggs right on top of the, <laughs> right, right on top of the ground, or in the, you know, and they dry out super quick. So, I don't know. I eventually I'll get them totally figured out. But that's one of the reasons why I've been working on that for six years, and I still don't really have a sellable. Um, 
animals to offer. I ha I've kept the albinos we produced and we only have like seven or eight of them now, but um, yeah, I've gotten lucky and found either a hatchling in a cage or found an egg at the right time and got it out. Um, so it's just, it's just been, and admittedly they've been on the, the lower end of my priority scale because I've been working intently on this monitor thing. I got huge tegu project that we're working on um so that's really where my most of my efforts been and the and the anoles are kind of like the thing that you know I, I make sure they're taken care of but they're definitely devising a new system for them is is uh is like on the last to do things once i get the the monitors where i want them to be so yeah. and speaking of monitors i mean you were one of the first people if not the first person to breed croc monitors right in privately in the united states yeah i'm um i'm not sure exactly where i am in that scheme of things i believe that the gladys porter zoo is technically the first uh one in the u.s and then i know stan Chiris also produced them i'm not sure what year he did but yeah me and stan were basically the first two to produce them um i did mine sometime in the mid 90s um and then I, I continued to do it for a few years until um, I almost got bit in the face by a nine and a half foot one. No, thank and, you. Uh, and my my ex wife had enough of that, so she happened to witness it that day. This and that was a totally tame animal. It was it? And it drives me nuts that I see people dragging crocodile monitors to shows and having them. I know they're tame, but trust me, they're they're the one that I had was very tame. I used to hand feed it all the time. And it was it was a it was a great animal. And one day there were other people over. It made it nervous, I guess. He decided he wanted me out of that cage, and and he was at full operating temperature, which um, I think is the I think is an issue. So, so how do you go about working with an animal like that? I mean, you obviously worked with it for years without issue. So, I mean, what are kind of the safety protocols that you take before something like that happens? Yeah, I mean, I have them again too now. So um, nice, <laughs> going right back for it. Yeah, no, I'm not done with that. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, they're really they're, the crocodile monitors are really two different things. They're, as far as I'm concerned, they are the most dangerous non-venomous reptile that we keep in captivity. They are not. They they are they're capable of catastrophic damage, even from just a just a leave me alone bite, you know, not even, an, not even an intentful, you know, bite on their hat, but just a nip can really, the first one I ever hatched, right. I was so excited that I hatched this thing and it was this enormous baby. It was like 18 inches long. It's mostly tail, but it was huge, but I was so excited. I ripped the top off the incubator and I just grabbed it indiscriminately and it was covered in yolks. So it was slippery and it just turned around and it bit my index finger and just pulled back. And it was just like, I mean, it, I didn't, it, I didn't even feel pressure. It was like, you know, just a soft pullback and it, and it looked like you took two razor blades, one on the top and one on the bottom and sliced my finger from one end to the other. I, we actually thought I was going to have to go to the hospital from a hatchling. So that, you know, I mean, they're, 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 they're dangerous. They're not, they're not for everybody. I, I, disagree with uh with uh, i see a lot of people out there that don't really have much experience with 
large varanids in general and they're walking around with a crocodile monitor and i know you think it's tame but when it's operating temperature and it gets scared or you know something startles it and it makes a mistake just like dogs do it's not going to be very nice so i think people need to treat them that way and we always did to a degree um but I trusted this particular animal and it was actually during the Daytona show and I had a lot of people came down to see the collection. So I was showing off, I was in its cage. I'm like, look at this, this is El Diablo, the nine and a half foot crocodile monitor. And he, he was in a, I had, I always use these tiered shelves and I had a, he had a hide box on the top and I put a rat in front of it and he came out and he ate and, you know, and I was fed him another one and people were, were watching it and he just, I, I guess having other people around that he didn't recognize scared him or spooked him. And he, he, he tried, I mean, I caught him at the last second. I mean, he was six inches from my face with his mouth open and, um, and I threw him across the cage cause I, he had grabbed me. They have huge claws like talons and he grabbed onto me. I threw him back. He bounced off the chain link fence. He'd landed on the floor and he chased me out of, out of the cage and he just, he wasn't having it. And, uh, he was, he was, he was trying to, he was going to, he may have killed me in that point. I mean, if I, I really don't know what a bite to the face like that or neck would have done. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, nowadays I, I'd be much more careful. I, I I'm not going to be going inside the enclosures with them anymore like that. If I do, it will be when there aren't strangers around. I've definitely learned that. And I've seen that some of the stuff that Crutchfield has going on over there where he's, is a really tame and that was exactly like mine. So I think, I think it's just, he also that, took a hospital trip not too long ago. And, and that, and that was a, that was, he was trying to break up a, a fight that he broke. He tried to introduce a pair. Um, Cause he and I have been doing a lot of, I, I talked to him about that quite a bit. He calls me if he has a question, you know, we've been trying to figure out exactly what I did right. And <laughs> how I can duplicate it. Right. Um, and, um, he, he tried to put two of them together and, and they started to fight. So he didn't want either one to get hurt. He went in to get them off and he just took a, a leave me alone nip and it sent him to the hospital. I mean, it was horrendous damage. Mm-hmm. So you couple the fact with they have enormous teeth, serrated teeth. They have a, a, a toxic saliva. Um, they're not, they're not something you want to have make a mistake. So we basically How old were you when you got your first one. Um, I like 23, 24. Um, I had three huge pairs. They they are definitely you bought them all at one time at 23. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah, but by then I I had had a lot of experience already with I had been keeping giant lizards since I was I mean I Actually, I forgot about this story, but when I was 14 years old, I caught an adult rhinoceros one on a canal bank in Miami. <laughs> yep. Yep. Did your mom let you take that one home? Yeah, she didn't have a choice. That was coming home no matter what. Matter of fact, I put it. I got on. I I caught it out in this place called Hialeah in back of this mall. It was on a canal bank, and um, I I drug it. To, I got on the metro bus with it. I took it to this. I took it as far as I could go before they kicked me off. <laughs> And then I had to call my mom and she showed up and I was at the bus stop holding this huge lizard with its mouth taped up. And oh my she, God. she was like, what the hell is that? I was like, it's a rhinoceros iguana and it's coming home. I can't and, believe uh, they even let you on the bus. That's a huge lizard. Like- <laughs> yeah. 
back. Well, we just walked in, dropped the coins in and ran to the back and kind of hid in the back behind the seats. And But they, the, the bus driver knew he only tolerated it for so long. And it hit shit all over me, and it was just oh, <laughs> so you just oh yeah, it was it was it was fun, um, but uh, yeah, I had a lot of experience, and I was breeding cyclora by then for like three or four years, so I had a lot of experience with big lizards. I mean, they are definitely a major step up from that. But um, the buddy, I went to to the guy I used to get rats from to feed my boas. I went to his house one day and to pick up rats, and I went in his backyard, and he had these huge cages with these three pairs of these crocodile monitors and he's like yeah i'm gonna sell them on i can't get them to do anything and so i i looked at that and i was like Shit, i'll buy those i had never seen them anywhere near that big before i mean they normally imported them they were like five six feet long and these were eight eight and a half foot just massive so i bought them all and um and it took me a few years to get them dialed in and i never knew exactly what i did right to get them to finally breed because initially I was getting breeding out of them. They were, they would lay eggs on the ground. The females were not, the nesting wasn't proper. And then um, I think it was Frank Reedus had told me about using um, like leaf litter and putting it in a tree to simulate uh, like giant staghorn plants that would, that were found where crocodile monitors found. And that was one of the ideas that maybe they laid their eggs in there. They don't lay in the ground. So I made a garbage can. I cut a hole in it and filled it up with leaf litter and compost and hung it in the highest part of the tree. And within a year, I started getting eggs. I changed a lot of other things at the same time, though, and I never knew if that really was what it was, whether it was that, whether, you know, something else that I had changed. But it does look like basically what they do is they lay their eggs in termite mounds and these giant termite mounds that are in trees. And I had sort of simulated it, but not quite. It wasn't quite perfect, so now, now I think, uh, now I think I know what to do as far as, and I think that is going to be the thing that makes them, you know, producible at least with some regularity. It's pretty hard to get a female to nest properly, but I think the fake termite mound thing is the way to go. So, um, so with all the other monitor people we've had on, I feel like the two like buzzwords are variety buzz phrases variety in diet and target training yeah um, so do you do the target training and everything yeah i actually do both of those things um the variety of diet is just basic common sense and if you look at a lot of varanids in captivity they, a lot of them trend towards obesity just like pythons from overfeeding and you know rodents are commercial rodents are really not they're just probably too, they're probably too good, you know, in the wild they would get, they'd be eating weak things and things that were easy to catch and not well-fed <laughs> commercially raised rodents and get them, you know, every, you know, seven days or three days or whatever. Um, yeah. So we do, we do the, both the target feeding. Um, that really is probably one of the key important parts of monitors. Um, the, the problem with the mo with monitors is that, well, in my case, um, and anybody that keeps them the way I do, I keep them all in pairs. So I don't keep them separate and introduce them. I found that, in general, that leads to more problems than it solves. And do so, you start from babies? They're together the whole life? Or can you put together two adults? No, I've, I've been able to put together two adults. That's a little, that's a little trickier. I generally try to get 
stuff, you know, is in the sub-adult or younger phase and then raise them together. But if I can't, I can definitely, I've made the adult thing work. With almost every varanid except for crocodile monitors, it's fairly straightforward. But with crocodile monitors, it's a little, it's, it's, it's risky. So that's, that one's tricky. It's risky to you and it's risky to them. And right. Then so, um, but, um, but yeah, so because I keep them together, you have to do target feeding because otherwise males generally tend to be voracious feeders and females are very timid about it. And you need the females to eat three to two to three times more than the males. So you have to target feed. Otherwise, if you put a bowl of food in there, the male just gorges. You end up with a fat male that won't do anything. And the females don't get enough to to produce viable eggs. And so, yeah, the target feeding is pretty much something that has to be done. Um, so we do that. And then the um, the variety of diet, we use just a huge range. We use... Uh, quail rats mice um various chicken parts from the grocery store you know all kind of different stuff and by mixing it up too it triggers a better feeding response and a lot of you know they get tired of eat just like people they you know you can only eat the same thing so many times in a row before you're like ah not again and they're then they're just like that so if you're constantly rotating new things and i don't think it's as beneficial as we kind of want to believe i think I think it's just, you know, it probably in a little bit, it's probably a little beneficial, but I, I mean, I've definitely raised and bred Cape monitors, which are primarily a snail eater in the wild, um, on, uh, on a diet exclusively of rodents in the past and they were fine. Nowadays, I don't really do that. I use kind of an insectivorous diet when they're young and then I switch them over to that mixed diet with a whole bunch of different things. And. For them, I also include Missouri crocodile diet as part of their um, part of their food rotation, which seems to work pretty good and has a lot of things that I think they might need. So, um, yeah, I mean that's that's what we do that for the tegus too. Tegus have the same all the same problems. So all you have to do is look online to see a whole lot of obese tegus <laughs> that that uh, you know. The tegu thing is just a complete disaster. The diets are all a mess, and there's a lot that needs to be done with them. I read a few research papers recently that I realized that, and I and I, uh, in a lot of ways, I'm responsible for a lot of the diet misinformation that's out there because that was the information that I had in the '90s and the use of you know the the San Diego Zoo turkey diet, which is a great supplement. But the problem is, is that most people don't bother to actually mix it. They think the San Diego turkey diet is to go buy a turkey and give them turkey balls. No, that's not how it works. If you're not adding the 90 grams of bone meal and the two crushed centrum vitamins and mixing it all up mm. thoroughly, you're giving them a very inefficient uh, meal. And people tend to go buy raw turkey, feed it to their tegus, and then call me a month later and ask me why their tegus have metabolic bone disease. Well, they have that because you stuffed them with no calcium food and, you know, and screwed them up. So, um, but it does seem like tegus are supposed to be insectivorous as babies and primarily fruit eaters as adults, which is totally counter to the way that we used to think and, right. and the way that they're fed. But all the research seems to indicate that at least in the case of the red and the Argentine black and white, that those are fruit eaters, they're frugivorous animals as adults. That's all pretty much all they eat. 
So, so what are you doing for your adult tegus right now? That's what I'm doing. Uh, I'm they're getting so all the babies get primarily insects, and then as soon as they start eating fruit naturally, I start to switch them over, which seems to be about subadult size. Um, and then fortunately, I live in Florida, so one of the things that we found that they eat in Florida, but also in in situ where they come from, is they eat a lot of palm seeds, and I am surrounded by large. Uh, seed bearing palm seeds so i have my friends just when they have big giant bundles of ripe palm palms uh palm seeds on their trees they cut them down and give them to me and i put the entire thing in the cage with the tegus and let them gorge as they want and they will pick it clean over a month or so and it's it's working real good my tegus now look like like they're supposed to they're lean they're they're muscular it made a huge difference so they don't look like the, the blobs that you see when they're fed too many rodents and, and meat. So we use, we're basically giving them about 80% fruit and the wow. other 20% we're giving them is the Missouri crocodile diet for their protein uh, intake. And it has a lot of vitamins and other things in it. So I'm hoping that it makes up for any, you know, possible deficiencies, but I've been experimenting on that now with two years and it's had really good results. So. And I bet that made your uh, grocery store visits a lot easier when you just got to get fruit. <laughs> yep. Yep. It's sure. Not yeah. that you're not getting all the other stuff. Oh, no, there's some two else. for the younger ones and for all the other stuff you when keep. You but it, it made it a little bit better. Yep. And Chuck Horn said that um, night anoles also eat fruit. Yep. We use we use a lot of fruit for them. And they're they're also one of those animals that. That when they're adults, we know for a fact, I know for a fact from collecting them in the wild when I was a kid that they would, more often than not, I would catch them in fruit trees. Their mouths would be covered with mango or they would eat these Suriname cherries and, and they had a huge seed and they would always, they would shit, they would pass the seeds. So I would find the seeds in the, in the bags that, you know, after I would bag them up. Um, so I knew they were eating a lot of that stuff. And so we kind of mimicked that. We also got most of them to eat rapashi. Um, crested gecko diets which is basically a fruit mix and once you have them on that 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 seems to have helped them out a lot too so we give them about probably 50 50 insects and uh and and some fruit in some form or another and then occasionally we give them live lizards and all other small anoles now with the amount of animals you keep outside i'm envisioning you have an extensive amount of land would you ever start, um, you know, growing your own fruit and things out there to supply your uh, for your animals? Yeah, I mean, I've done that in the past. Um, that was more something my ex-wife used to do. Heather's not really big on gardening right now. Maybe she might. I think she has some interest in it, but she's mentioned it a couple of times, but it doesn't seem like something that she's going to do and, and I kill every tree that I come into contact with. So it's not something, uh, it would, it would be good, but one of us has to have a green thumb here to be able to do it. And, and, uh, just, I'm, I, I can keep lizards alive, but if it come, when it comes to plants, if you saw the amount of plants that I have to replace in my anoles, because I forget to water them and the plants die and, you know, obviously spraying the, given the anoles do is not enough to keep a plant watered properly. Who'd have thunk it? But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, I don't know. I mean, it is a good idea and it would definitely save money um, if we could do that stuff. But I, I used to produce my own superworms. I don't do that anymore and all that. It's just, 
it came down to I can either lower my animal production and increase the feeders. I, I really hit a point where I couldn't do both. And we, we um, both her and I, one of our main things is that we don't take on anything more than what the two of us can do. We don't want to have employees. We want to have full control over everything we produce so that, you know, we ship it out. It's everything from the very, the most, you know, grunt work part of the job to the, to the best part of the job has all been done by us entirely at the entire stage. So um, I've kind of been passing on doing feeders and stuff like that. And I just buy them from different sources and, and rather that, you know, we, we produce more animals to make up for the, for that. But it is, it is definitely something. And there's a lot of people that do do that and it works really well. So Wow. And I think now nah, I think people would be mad if we don't if we well we waited two hours to talk about lace monitors. <laughs> I think people are gonna be like, "What the hell are you doing? We should have talked about those right off the bat." So how the hell? I don't even know that there was because I've seen Steve's who is uh the the leaping leeches guy who also has the cataphractus the yeah, and um he has a I saw a Bell's phase lace monitor that he had at Hamburg. And that's the only one I've ever seen in person. I was I was under the impression that that was probably the only one that was in the country, but uh, clearly you have a group of them. So how the hell did that happen? Well, um, actually, there are two guys, um, Don Church and Brian Waterloo, and then I also think John Egan has produced them. So there's three guys that have been producing them for about, I want to say, three years, maybe four years now. Um, a group of them came in, I think around 2015 from Europe, Germany, um, and, uh, people bought them and, and they are, uh, they're not terribly difficult to produce. Um, so, you know, they're around and they've been more and more, I, I'm not sure exactly how many, there are quite a few in the U S. Um, and fortunately we have both phases and, um, so I have a group of 2.3, 1.1 that we own, and then a trio that are on loan from a friend. And um, and yeah, I, I like I said, man, and that I don't know if you saw that post I made today. It's the first time I really showed them to the public. I've been kind of keeping that on the down low until I felt like I had grabbing animals and stuff. But um, that is something I have always wanted. And I mean, that those things are just incredible that I to me, that's pretty much, that's like, that's my Boland's Python. <laughs> although, although I am eventually going to get Boland. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that, that there are three things that, it, four things that have always been on like the top of my list that I would, that I one day wanted to work with. It was the Lace Monitor, the Boland's Python, the Amazon Basin Emeralds and Sanzinia. And I've had Sanzinia in the past, but stupidly got rid of them because they were cheap and there was a lot of them around. Now I can't, now you can't get them any, you know, I mean, there are, there's some people working with them, but they're rare. And now everybody wants the damn things too. So it's hard to get them when they do come up, they get sold like quick. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but those four things are like my holy grail thing. But the lace monitor sits on the very top of that list. And um, I never thought I would ever get those or Bell's face lace. I just didn't think that was, uh, you know, there have been, actually there have been, non-Bell's phase lace monitors in the U.S., at least going back to 94, because the guy that had the croc monitors that I bought had a pair of lace monitors, um, but he wanted like $25,000 for those, and that was way out of my range. I mean, I couldn't even come close to affording that. So, um, 
So I just kind of forgot about them. The Crocs were way cheaper and that was something I could afford. So, um, but so they've been in the country, uh, but the bells came in, in that German shipment in, uh, 2015, I think, or 2014. What's the heredity like, say, if you breed a Bell's phase to a, I want to say normal in quotation marks, lace monitor? I'm not a hundred percent sure on that, but I do know that they, they're, that they do produce them. I think the, I think it's about a 50, 50. Um, but I, I, I've gotten different, um, different opinions from different people on that. So I'm not really sure. I, it does appear to me, you know, like I know it's heritable. I know they do throw on them and you'd only need one to make more. So, you know, it's probably like a typical polygenic kind of trade thing where, you know, a percentage of them when you only have seven eggs though, I could see where it might, you know, it could look like it's 50, 50%. It could look like it's 20%, I guess, depending on, you know, you have such a few small sample size, but so it is heritable and it is produced, I believe in a polygenic fashion. Um, so once you have one, you can make more. And, uh, yeah, it's, I have actually three bells, so I definitely plan to breed some of those together and in the future. And they're, they're incredible though. Super intelligent, uh, very easiest one to target train by far. I mean, I have Cape monitors and no matter what you do that all three or four of them, I have three big ones in an in a enclosure and no matter what, they all fight over the rats. I try to get them separated and one grabs one, drops what they oh, had, yeah. runs over and tries to steal the other. They're just stupid. But the lace don't do that. I mean, they the male, I taught him that if I put the tongs and I just put it under his throat, you know, just, just put it there just like to stop him. If I stop him, he'll just, he'll stop and he'll let the female eat. And I taught him that if he stays there, you know, and he doesn't try to take her food, then I'll give him one and he sits and waits. And it's been, it's been really cool, man. I've had a lot of fun with that. That's, those are incredible things. I, that's pretty much, I've reached the end now. I, there's nowhere else to go. <laughs> so is it, is it, Something to be said to where you're working with the pinnacle species that you ever wanted to work with in your career. You're also still working with the species that pretty much started your career. So is it odd how full circle, you know, this has all come? Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, we have, yeah, I, I don't know how many species we have here right now, but there's probably 35 different species that we're working with. Um, and yeah, it is, it is, it is weird like that. Like having bearded dragons that I've been working with since almost unbroken since 1988 and, you know, Cuban and Oles, which were the first real lizard my parents ever bought me. And now I have only seven or eight albinos of those things. Um, actually there is one more albino that I had for a while, it belonged to Ben Siegel. I gave it back and he sold it to somebody else, but I'm not sure where that one went, but so there are a few, um, but yeah, it's weird having stuff like that, that it just never, some things I feel like they're lead anchors and I can't get rid of them. <laughs> I've, I've been telling everybody for 10 years, I'm not doing any more bearded dragons. And then I end up, my girlfriend is a bearded, one of the top bearded dragon people around. So now I'm definitely stuck with them for, they're not going anywhere, but, um, you know, at least I don't have to. She, she does almost everything with them. And I kind of got to step back out of that. And it's all kind of her gig and I don't interfere. She did, does it better than I ever did it as far as that stuff. So mm -hmm. I'm not going to go tinkering with that and screwing that up. And she's, she's also 
by being with me, she's had access to a lot of other rare species that she hadn't previously had access to. So now she's got, you know, Australian water dragons and serrated coneheads and a lot of these other more obscure lizards that I think will one day be very, very popular. Water dragons. The water dragons. Yeah. When I first got exposed to the hobby, it's when water dragons were everywhere. And I even had a water dragon when I was like 12. Um, I mean, they never ended well. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the Australian water dragons were pretty much kept in the trade by Bert Langerworth, who passed away in 2007 or 2008. Um, But he was he was producing thousands of them. I mean, he was the Mm -hmm. I wouldn't even I, I actually personally Bert and I were friends and I tried not to do anything he did because one, because he was going to outproduce me on that stuff anyway, because that man lived, that's all he did was lizards and he was very, very good at it. But I always had other interests. I was never willing to take it to the level that Bert was willing to take it to. So I was smart enough to go, yeah, I'm not going to be able to compete with this guy because he's way too hardcore. And so I never bothered with him um, until he passed away. And then I went and got some, Um, but um but yeah, they, I mean, those almost disappeared and a few guys kept them going. So, um, I, I ended up not keeping mine for more than a year or two. And then I, they're, they're, they're actually perfectly suited for Florida, but the way I was set up previously, it was too hard for me to find the eggs. They, they're really good at hiding their eggs in the enclosure. Hmm. And, um, I would find them hatched in the enclosure or find them, you know, they, they got eaten by superworms that were, you know, out of the feed bins and stuff so i eventually scrapped it and then i tried to get them again a few years later and there were there were hardly any around um this year we got a small group from a friend of mine and so we kept a few of them and we sold the rest of tinley actually um so yeah and they went quick and for i mean they're people are really really wanting them so they sold like super fast so that's a good sign i mean stuff like that the fact that people are willing to uh they're looking for new stuff, cool stuff, and I'm hoping a lot more people start breeding this stuff so we don't lose it. Because the water dragons, the Australian water dragon was definitely a case where we probably were close to losing them forever after Bert died, but a couple of guys kept them going. So, Yeah, that's incredible how the whole market can depend on one guy. It, re- it really does. I mean... Not so much with, you know, with like the corn snakes and the, there's so many of you guys, you know, that are, well, actually even the corn snakes, though, it really got down to only a couple of people. But there's always those people who were wholesaling. You could still sell 10,000 wholesale corn snakes. Yeah. You couldn't sell them on like a boutique morph level like we do now. Yeah. But I mean, there. but you know, everybody jumped out of everything to do ball pythons. Ball pythons are in no danger of ever going anywhere. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it really is. It, you can have one or two guys producing thousands of them and then they stop and then it only takes a few years for the whole thing to just, and you just wonder where the hell did all those things go? Right. And I mean, I mean, it's, they're probably out there, you know, one or two here, one there and stuff, but I don't know, man, it's, uh, I think we just got to pay attention to stuff like that a little more and people need to start looking outside the box in the hobby in general. There's a, there's, if you're looking to make a living, there's plenty of money to be made in other things. You don't have to, I have never walked the, 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 the road where the, I always do some of the trendy things, but I also always make sure I do like the other stuff. And 
a lot of times that other stuff saves my ass when the trendy stuff craters and you know stuff like that so i don't know just do what you love man then you can't lose that way it really is the truth i think and kind of in that same vein one last question just to close it out so there's probably a lot of people who are say you know, 16 to 25 or something, don't know what the hell they're doing with their lives. They would love to make reptiles a full-time living. So um, someone with as much experience as you have, I mean, what kind of okay. advice would you give them to uh, to start out a career in reptiles? I mean, honestly, you just got to do it. You got to get, you got to get out there. You got to talk to people. You have to immerse yourself in the community. You, and, and nowadays there's so many easy resources that, that, you know, I had to, you know, it's that, it's that walk up, you know, walk up the hill. You need to send a picture to Dr. Bechtel. Right. Wait in the mail. <laughs> right. Now, now, but I mean, it is, I mean, actually it's probably in some ways, actually it, it, now that I think about it, it's probably actually kind of harder in some ways because there's so much and everything is so fragmented. And um, so you got to be in a lot of places at, at, you know, at different times and stuff. But I mean, I, you just got to get out there and do it. Find stuff that you really that makes you want to get up every morning and do it and then just fucking chase it. And don't listen to what anybody else says, because a lot of people have told me that I should have abandoned this a common phrase when I was, you know, that I've heard over the years was, why don't you just go to work for Home Depot and call it a day and stuff like that. You know, you, you just have to, you just have to do it. I just, just don't ever stop. The ones that fail are the ones that stop. It's, not, it's fine to fail. I failed more than, I probably learned far more from the failures that I've had, which I've had some spectacular ones that really, some of them were hard to recover from, but I mean, I've learned far more from those than I did from any successful things that I ever did. And that that makes you better because if you, you lick your wounds, you figure out why you fucked up and how you can, you know, fix it and do better on the next time. And then it does get progressively better over time. You get better and better and better. And the better you get, the more secure your your place in the in the industry or the community is. So you just got to do it, man. And then just don't listen to the naysayers. Right on. And if anyone wants to get in touch with you, where can they find you? Um, yeah. <laughs> what is your gamer tag? Is that still a thing? <laughs> Actually, that'd be World of Warcraft these days. But um, no. Um, well, they can get a hold of us on Fairy Tale Dragons uh, Facebook page, uh, and then my personal Facebook page, uh, Ron Saint Pierre. I think it's Ron Saint Pierre fourteen at Facebook or whatever. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty easy to find that way. Um, but yeah, Heather's website is fairytaledragons.com and she also has the fairy tale dragons Facebook page. It's fairy tale with a T A I L. So it's, it's, it's pretty easy to find. I don't know what Ryan's talking about, but he's asking if you're a horde or alliance. I don't know what that means. Horde man. <laughs> <laughs> no idea what that is. <laughs> We don't know those things. Well, we may have pissed off the Alliance folks, all of our Alliance (laughs) listeners, whatever that is. We lost them. And Ryan says (laughs) Team Blood Elf all day. (laughs) I don't know what all these things are. Yeah, it's World of Warcraft. That's a different podcast, I think. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Definitely gamer (laughs) podcasts out there. Yeah. 
but I would take us a little while to get caught up. Where, oh, yeah. where you can find us is PortCityPythons.com, PortCityPythons, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, all that good stuff. You're listening to us from the ground up podcast. Anything else that I missed? That is it. Thank you, Ron, for coming on and enlightening us. Thanks a lot, you guys. I appreciate it. Thanks for letting me be here. Of yeah. course. We did it. The man, the myth, the legend, Ron St. Pierre. <laughs> Thank you for hanging out with us for over two hours and for giving us all this amazing knowledge. Anytime, man. If you ever want me to come back, just drop me a line. I'll be here. Definitely. Awesome. We will catch you guys next week.